darlings! Welcome back to Hashtag Loom Squad, the one and only podcast dedicated to the wonderful awakening world of Rumiko Takahashi's Yurusei Yatsuro. I'm one of your hosts, La Romayasha. And I'm Andrew A.C. Yoshimura. How have you been? I've been, uh, you know, we, in the times we're living, I've been okay, I will say. That's good to hear. Yeah, they are they are very strange times. Yeah. We're recording this on the 31st of October for me, so the 30th of October for you. Halloween. So just before Halloween, yep. I'm uh I'm not really dressed up actually, so <laughs> <laughs> I should have worn something more Urusei Yatsura appropriate, but I don't really have any cosplays geared towards that, believe it or not. Except uh I do have a tiger stripe jumper. Oh my god. So gosh. I could look a little bit like Ray, a little bit. Uh, or Lum's dad. That is my ultimate cosplay. <laughs> I used to be I used to be a lot heftier, a lot fatter than I am now, and I, at one stage I probably could have pulled that off, I reckon, but not anymore. <laughs> I lost about 15 kilos or something and I just I just don't have the the look for that anymore, but still maybe one day I'll shove a, a cushion down my shirt and <laughs> then I'll be Lum's dad. Oh my gosh, I mean, your Are you gonna... entire family could cosplay as Lum's family. <laughs> that would be very cute, actually. <laughs> a, a little a little darling Lum. So, are you going to dress up as anything tomorrow, your time? I haven't had anything prepared, unfortunately. I'll tr- maybe throw something makeshift, because I am going to a friend's house for a small Halloween party. But, of course, under these quarantine times, you know... A lot of Halloween yeah. traditions are kind of on the kibosh. I don't even know if we'll get many trick-or-treaters this year. It's very sad. Hopefully next year, Halloween can be lively again. And we'll even maybe plan a Halloween special of the show to celebrate that too. That would be good. Yeah, that'd be awesome. But though, in this volume we're going to talk about today, there are a lot of really good horror stories, so that fits the occasion, even though you guys are probably going to listen to this quite a bit after Halloween. <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> it's, always, it's always good to tell people the context of when we record this, just in case, because sometimes people ask, like, going, what was going on when you guys were recording that? It seems like ages ago, or it seems like two weeks ago, and it's like, well, we may as well just give them the date. It seems like that a year ago. That way I won't have to ago. answer questions. Sounds strange. <laughs> so, that was only once. <laughs> well, it has been only one time. about four months since we recorded our last episode. Yeah, June, July, August, September. Yeah, about... June was the last time we recorded, and I have not released that episode yet. I plan to release these pretty quickly here as Volume 8 is coming out soon, and I want us to get to that because Volume 8 is going to be big, with a big character finally getting introduced to English readers for the first (laughs) time that I'm so excited for. But first, got to cover Volume 7, which is what we're here to talk about today. And even though this, in some respects, is a traditional volume, I think there are a lot of interesting trends uh, in this volume, a lot of interesting kind of motifs, recurring elements that Takashi employs and writes stories mm. about that I found very interesting to read read and go through. Yeah, look, this um, this volume actually differs from the last one. The last one was very school-centric and, and school-focused with a lot of extra characters kind of thrown in there. And this one kind of backs away from that a little bit. And I think maybe some of the reasons 
are that it's um, like these come out weekly, effectively, uh, or they used to come out weekly, these stories. And so they would kind of be more or less in tune with the rest of the world at the time and the seasons and, you know, kids on school holidays. Because if you're on school holidays, you don't necessarily want to read about kids being in school. So I think a lot of um, a lot of mangaka would, you know, who do things weekly and don't have large continuity and, you know, have self-contained stories can kind of um, adjust their stories to a setting that's kind of more happening at that particular moment in time. I think so. Though in the first half of this volume especially, I think the school setting and particularly at least the class at Onsen Mark are a very prominent presence. Even in chapters which are not set at the school, oftentimes those characters will show up, like in the end of the first half of this volume, uh, the volume 13 part, at the Mendo family masquerade battle. Like, the class <laughs> and Ons and Mark are just there participating. So, Takashi's really getting a lot of mileage out of those characters. She's really focusing on Onsen Mark a lot more, Yes, I'm finding, as this goes on. Yes, especially. I mean, to just start off uh, this volume, we have the Musashi arc. The Super Musashi arc is another one of these, mm. like, alternate tale uh, stories, which place the it's characters... It's a historical setting. Yeah, it places the characters at another point in time. It's not... It's the character's playing as roles of other characters and of course this is retelling the story of the famous samurai miyamoto misashi and his mm. rivalry with sakaki kojiro and onsen plays the role of misashi the main character but of course <laughs> as you can see from just the first page the title page of the first chapter of this arc onsen is way in the back with ataru right way behind more a cow prominent. yeah right behind a cow <laughs> a cow that ataru promptly cooks in this chapter he just steals and roasts a cow over a fire it's great but yeah onsen is this like this is good so Ansem's like yelling in the background, hey, I'm the main character, <laughs> while the focus is on Ataru and Lum and Cherry. I mean, I mean, even Cherry is bigger than him on the front page of this chapter. Yeah. And that's telling you something. <laughs> I think it is telling. I mean, actually, I also want to point, not only is Ansem Mark prominent, I think Cherry is really prominent in this volume. Like, every chapter, mm. especially in this first half of the volume 13 part of this volume, like, Cherry is like in every chapter. Like he and he has a prominent role, or he has like at least a good few pages dedicated to gags involving him. So I think she really got interested in Cherry and Onsen Mark around this time. Yeah, it's kind of weird because Cherry goes through waves. Like he just mm. won't appear for a while. In fact, there was a long time near the start where he just didn't appear for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And then I think even Sakura like maybe appeared back before he did. Yeah, and then he just he would just come kind of come in for a big burst. For like five or six chapters and then just kind of disappear again. Yeah. But then she started to get into the Looney Tunes gag of him just popping <laughs> up out of nowhere. Oh my gosh, there's such a good gag. Just in completely <laughs> randomly. Uh, and everyone, you know, kind of throws up or like is, is bowling backwards. Oh my god, there's so many good gags in this volume that are just predicated on just Cherry popping up. Like when they are going camping uh, on their picnic in a robot location Atari is setting up the picnic and he's saying hey don't put a picnic in the middle of the road someone will show up and like 
Atari was like, who's going to show up? And then there's just like a page and it included the close-ups of every character, just Billy of anticipation for the bottom panel of Cherry's <laughs> face just showing up and taking everyone aback. Oh my god, there's so many gags like that where it's like a big build-up and then at the end, it's like just Cherry's face and everyone is just like flummoxed and they all fall down <laughs> because they weren't expecting The good him. thing about drawing a a big cherry's face is there's not a lot of detail there and you can just kind of make it shiny. So it's probably <laughs> really super quick to draw, mm-hmm. which is probably why that gag works so well. Anyway, so for this chapter, we've, uh, it's set in the uh, Keicho era mm. in Mio, Miyamoto, uh, hang on, <laughs> Miyamoto Village. I almost said Miyamoto, that would make sense, Miyamoto Village. And you've got uh, basically Onsen Mark, Declaring himself the main character, wanting to make something of himself. He is um, Musashi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, he runs into Ataru straight away, who's stealing an entire cow. <laughs> yeah. So he just, uh, on you know, Onsen here is just kind of completely run over by the villagers chasing Ataru. And then he is, of course, shacked up with Lum, the adopted daughter of the temple priest. Mm-hmm. And he just uh, just gets the... The cow back and they just cook it. Yeah. Oh, poor Mary. It's worth noting the temple priest is, of course, Cherry. So in this reality, <laughs> Lum is Cherry's daughter, apparently. Though yeah. they make reference to Lum and Ten being aliens. So I assume they are they, they adopted. They do say adopted daughter. So yeah, yeah. I guess that covers it. Mm-hmm. But they call the, the, the cow they're cooking some daikon radish. <laughs> yeah. So, Very Which deluded. looks nothing like a cow. <laughs> and, of course, and everyone... Yeah, the villagers and the farmer, they come to reclaim the cow and they just burst out crying when they see he's been roasted. <laughs> or she's been roasted, poor Mary. <laughs> she's been roasted. It was, her name was Mary, <laughs> uh, the daikon slash cow. And of course, they all tuck in and have a good feed and then uh, and then Ataru gets his uh, knuppence afterwards. Yeah. I mean, this is a reference to... Something that happened in the actual story of Misashi, like him being tied up by a rope, hung by a tree. Like, mm. a lot of my knowledge of the story of Misashi comes from Vagabond, the manga by Takeko Inoue. In this respect, oh, yes, Ataru's yes. role in this uh, mini arc is it reminds me a lot of Matahachi, who in Vagabond is the childhood friend of Misashi and basically kind of masquerades as both Misashi and Kojiro as different points in that story. So the whole idea yeah, of- and I think that's needed for the the scoundrelness of Ataru because yeah, the, yeah. you know we've got you've, you've got Onsen Mark going off and doing his own thing saying declaring himself the main character when he really has nothing to do with the story. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so of course um Ataru is a cad uh and they uh and they you know and he's a thief, he's a well-known thief. Mm-hmm. Of course he um he escapes. Well, yeah. Lum helps him escape, yeah, after- and then he does a runner. Yeah, he, he after Lum helps untie him, he promptly ties her to the tree and just runs off. It's worth noting that he was going to be freed by a bunch of different women, but when they all, like, convened and noticed like, each other and were like, what are you doing here? Like, they all realized that Ataru promised to marry all of them, so he was, like, two-timing all of them, and so they all threw their weapons at him. So good. (laughs) But yeah, when Ataru runs off, he runs to an old era uh, McDonald's, I guess, which is a tea shop. Yeah, there's definitely a a McDonald's reference here. (laughs) A tea shop in the mountains. Like, it's the literal 
arches. The little M arch is on this tea shop. <laughs> yep. It's a nice reference. And of course, you know, he's thieving his way across the countryside and ran- and runs into um, Mendo's character. Sasaki Kojiro, the fated rival yep. of Masashi. Uh, and of course, he runs away with Onsen Mark because um, and none of them pay. <laughs> it's it's all runner. part of a scam where none of them pay. <laughs> That's a runner in these chapters is that all the characters, wherever they eat out, they just leave without paying. They just do a dine and dash. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. I mean, like, no matter how, like, handsome, and Mendo looks even more handsome than normal with his very long ponytail and, and monkey yeah. on his shoulder. Oh my god, the monkey. I love- He's still doing a runner. <laughs> oh my gosh, the monkey. The I love how the monkey, like, grows larger and larger with each successive chapter. <laughs> like, he starts, like, being on, you know, Mendo's- shoulder he's small enough to like ride on mendo's shoulder in the second chapter he's like clinging to the front of him he's as big as his torso and then in the third chapter he's like as big as mendo <laughs> like he's basically he a like huge... a yeti by the by the last chapter yeah he has a huge growth spurt one thing i realized actually about the waitress at the tea shop i think this is supposed to be ninja kaede i think this is a rare return appearance from her because you'll notice it is, yes. not only does she look like her, she's throwing kunai, or I mean throwing stars, at the group as they're dining dashing. You can really tell her in profile when you see that. You can really tell that it's her with her particular hairstyle and, yeah. uh, and the kimono she's wearing. So that's, um, it's it's a nice little reference and it's it's more like a nice little cameo there, yeah. I think. There are a lot of interesting cameos in this volume, I will say. Like that happens surprisingly. Yeah, I think it's just fun to put them in different historical settings. I mean, we've already done this in that in the Heian period before, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of volumes ago, and that went um, and that worked quite well. So she decided to do it again. <laughs> the end of this chapter is, of course, um, Onsen and Mendo facing off as their great rivalry. But um, Mendo's already forgotten his name. <laughs> yeah, I also love in the end of these chapters they have like kind of a movie po- old timey movie poster, like promoting the next chapter of the story yeah they're kind of like a short sheet uh movie poster like for the old samurai movies back in the 60s and 70s yeah kind of the b movies <laughs> it's such a good <laughs> it's got definitely a b movie feel about it <laughs> uh and so the next chapter is called um musashi in training and of course just features ataru <laughs> and ataru is still going around being ataru yeah and he's, he's still thieving, food dining and dashing the shopping street like i love the anachronistic nature of this because there's a clearly a an old period like kfc like you have like a statue of the, the fried chicken yeah <laughs> outside this uh fried chicken shop you also notice like in the corner there's like just some place selling drugs there's like drugs on this banner in big text so that's kind of strange that is still a thing so that is still a big thing in japan um because what we call pharmacies or chemists <laughs> Um, they just call them drugstores. Okay. And they just have big, large signs out the front in front, in front of all the pharmacists, all the pharmacies in Japan that just say drugs, mm, okay. which is very exciting if you're new to the country, very disappointing <laughs> when you go inside. Oh yeah. You're not going to get your cush there. Uh, there's also, <laughs> there's, it's also fun that the, there's a Kyoto branch, uh, McDonald's tea shop, I guess, right next to the KFC, <laughs> uh, and a Chinese restaurant on the other side. <laughs> So, of course, Lum has followed Ataru all the way to Kyoto. 
Um, and she's still dead set on marrying him, and he's just not having any of it. And he's still calling himself Masashi from time to time, you know, <laughs> already getting that bad reputation. And of course, uh, debt collectors show up to the um, Yoshioka, Yoshioka Dojo, dojo mm, which is Sakura. Yeah. They all want um, her to pay for her meals. So the, the theme just keeps continuing in this. <laughs> so they're going to cancel the tab if he brings in Musashi, um, yeah. who is Ataru posing as him. Mm-hmm. And Shinobu's in this as well. And the monkey, you're right, is just getting larger and larger <laughs> and larger. Yeah. I mean, I just love how the monkey is like just crawling all over Mendo in every panel. It's in a different spot. I reckon the first read through of this, I didn't even notice the monkey. It wasn't until the second one that I kind of noticed that he that he had a monkey attached to him. And I went, was that there before? Oh, yeah, it was, but he was smaller. So we're, we're, they're all eating at a tea house. And um, nobody, you know, Ataru's wearing sunglasses rather than a mask now, which is a another cliche um, that people do in, in Japan. They hide their identity by either a face mask or sunglasses or both. And both, if you wear both of those at the same time, it looks very suspicious. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not, uh, often they say you're not allowed to wear both of those into like convenience stores, you know, because they're afraid you might rob them or something. I mean, in this case, they wouldn't be wrong. No, exactly. <laughs> so um, they, they all meet up in the tea shop and they all kind of challenge each other. And that doesn't really go anywhere. Because they're all just kind of hitting on each other and nobody really knows what their real identities are. Mm-hmm. So they all decide that they're going to go catch this Musashi and Ataru actually uses his name, Ataru. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, and then they just do a runner again. Yeah, no, uh, they Onsen Mark is also done and gnashing all over the town. So even though Ataru <laughs> is impersonating him, like the actual Onsen is Musashi, <laughs> he was doing the same thing anyway. So it wasn't really a lie. And then, Ata- <laughs> you know, Ataru promised to help Sakura capture Musashi, but instead he and Cherry just grab on to his food sack and they run away with him. And he's like protecting <laughs> and the food and the kicking men. He's like kicking men away saying, the food is mine. And <laughs> leaving a stunned lum <laughs> behind is like, what are you doing? <laughs> so next chapter is bad boy Musashi be a man. And there's a bit of a, a recap. I do like the first panel of this recap, which is very much stylized in the kind of in the era of that um, of the art style back then, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it kind of goes to, and these look like they would have been color pages, and you can tell because there's a lot more shading and a lot more kind of contrast in here. I think so, yeah. And often when they say they're color pages, they like some sometimes they were like full color. Yeah. And sometimes they just had shades of orange and black yeah. rather than just black. <laughs> Two-toned versions, yeah. That was pretty yeah. common. Yeah, tricolor kind of stuff. Like in this chapter, like the, when we first see Air Does You Know In Love, like the monkey, it's pulling this cart carrying Sakura and Shinobu and Laman Mendo on it. Like it is bigger than a person, as big as a person, and it's strong enough to carry four people and this giant cart around. <laughs> oh, gosh. And by this stage, they've kind of forgotten their original motivation and they've become basically a circus act, like a wandering circus act. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to track Musashi, they're trying to attack. Uh, down Ataru's Musashi, but in order to like pay their 
gets him money while they're on the road. They've basically become a traveling circus act alongside that. And so Lum does like this tightrope walking acrobatics tricks, like holding Ten from like a rope as he spits out fire. And then Mendo and the monkey are like the second act and they do, I guess, monkey tricks. <laughs> but like both decide to bail and just track down uh, Ataru independently. So the troupe loses its two starring acts. Yeah, and like, you know, everyone's going to go see the acrobatic lum. Yeah. And it literally says second class monkey show. Yeah, and it's worth noting <laughs> the that uh, Shinobu, I guess, was doing some death drawing. That's also one of the acts. So I guess that's all they had left after Lum and Mendo bailed. Of course, when Mendo bails, he leaves behind his monkey, who we learned was named Jotaro. So... He gets probably renamed the monkey a little bit later in this chapter by Ataru because Ataru yeah. encounters the monkey that was left behind by Mendo. He takes pity on the yep, poor fella. Food. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they go around uh, robbing uh, restaurants together as the monkey uh, adopts the alias of Kojiro. <laughs> Mendo's character. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think this this dynamic between these two characters, just Ataru and a monkey, works super well. <laughs> it kind of makes me they're just wish... such a perfect team. Yeah, it kind of makes me wish the monkey was in present day. It was the, he was around in like more of the actual story because <laughs> in this flashback, in this like uh, alternate period side story arc, it's a lot of fun with Ataru. <laughs> just in general, him as a visual presence. It's like Kotatsu Neko. It's just a fun visual gag that this giant animal character is always around. Especially when he smiles because he's got that kind of like less detailed face, like kind of moon-shaped eyes and like really big teeth that are kind of drawn unevenly. Yeah. Which is just always... It's always a treat to see that when there when there's kind of just like a, a more comedy face, and this monkey does that a lot. Yeah, and uh, and of course Cherry is along with them, pretending to be the moral voice, but stealing <laughs> as, as much food as they do, which is what you know what cherries want to do. Yeah, it's a mo- his mo. <laughs> and uh, they they go to a grand opening of the Blue Fish Cafe, where everyone subsequently gets food poisoning. <laughs> yeah, they eat some really bad uh, blowfish prepared by Onsen Mark. Musashi himself, apparently Musashi retired the life of the sportsman and became a blowfish chef, but he's a bad one because he prepared it <laughs> oh, wrong yeah. and he poisoned Ataru's group. And so apparently the cure for that is to bury a person in sand for one day. But of course, they don't want to do it outside the restaurant because that would ruin their reputation. So they go to Ganryu Island, which, of course, as we know, is the place where Musashi and Kojiro had their fated final duel. But instead here, Mm. like they go to bury uh, Taru's group in the sand. And as when they do, it's revealed Mendo's group and Sakura and Shinobu, they'd already been there apparently earlier and got it poisoned by <laughs> Onsen's bad blowfish. And so Onsen defeats Mendo by basically bashing him with an oar. And that's that's the end of their battle. That's the end of their uh, fated rivalry so, duel. Like the, the beginning of the story and the end of the original Musashi story do kind of work mm. in this context. Mm. Like, you know, the, the, the first and last story beats are there. It's just the middle thing is just completely out of context. Yeah. And which is great. Onsen as Masashi only appears like in the endings of the second and third chapters in this arc. So mm. for the supposed starring character, he really does not get a ton of screen time. Though he does 
win technically at the end. He's buried all his enemies in the dirt. <laughs> That's right. Yep, he does he does more or less win due to bad cooking, which is great. <laughs> So this next episode is um, we come out of the historical setting and it's back to school. Mm -hmm. And this is Terror of the Willow Ghost. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of creepy stories here. Often schools in Japan have the seven legends, you know, someone threw themselves off a building or there's a ghost of a kid who died in a bathroom or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of schools in Japan have these sort of myths and uh, Onsen Mark is is telling them about one of the scary stories here. Well, actually, he first tells them about the well, seven he, he scary legends. Yeah. And what's interesting about this is that some of these we've seen in the series. The a terrible failure cast where everyone falls asleep during the summer cherry blossom season. The re- legend of the yep. red cloaked phantom. Those are actual events that have happened in the story already. That's right. Yeah. And they're um and they're all fun as well. Like that uh, the the red the red cloak phantom is kind of a he only appears in like one story effectively mm-hmm. in any meaningful way, but he's kind of got a bit of a lasting presence. Yeah, I thought he was a memorable character design for sure. Yeah, he's certainly different than a lot of the other characters. Yeah, in fact, there's in one of the games, one of the point and click adventure games. Probably it was from the Mega Drive one, my dear friends, maybe. If you click on one of the bathroom mirrors, his reflection actually appears in there as kind of like a little gag. Oh. Which is pretty cool. That is a really cool detail. I love little cameos, nods like that, just the sprinkling. There are, there are quite the a few of those in the games as well. That's really cool. But this bit of lore with Tomobiki is really interesting to me, like these seven school legends. And obviously the class isn't impressed, but considering that some of these have already happened, I was wondering if Takahashi was thinking of actually doing all these stories at one point in the manga. She probably probably thought that maybe if she was running out of ideas, she's got some setup here, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't remember if some of these have analogs uh, equivalents to events that happen in the manga that's something that i would be interested in like kind of deep diving and see if all of these ever actually happen but of course they don't class themselves they don't care about these quote-unquote trite stories these are stories that every school Mm. yeah exactly as i said before like there are very similar myths and legends that go about school because school life in japan is very boring and the thing about japanese schools is that they all look the same. They're all basically the same structure. Like big-ass concrete buildings, very cold in summer, very sorry, very cold in winter, very hot in summer. They all have very similar three- or store-four-y layouts with like a clock, especially the um, the more the older school buildings. And so they have uh, similar foliage. So, of course, if there's one legend at one school, then it gets spread around and is slightly tweaked for the rest of the schools. Mm. Even the schools I taught at had their own myths and legends about, you know, the, the teacher who died or, you know, was was uh, locked in a classroom over the summer break and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, I mean, that certainly wouldn't be out of place in Yurisayatsura. <laughs> That's true. And the, the reason why that in one of the schools I was teaching at, that legend came out is because there was this room that all the teachers went into and didn't come out of for a long time. And it turns out that was the old smoking room. <laughs> so it was like a spare room where teachers just went to smoke between classes. Oh my gosh. That's great. And 
That room was disgusting because it had about 50 years worth of nicotine caked onto the walls. Oh, that sounds disgusting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it is. So this one is um, the ghost of the willow tree or a haunted willow tree. And of course, they, um, they carve Mendo's um, come, on, uh, come on on it. Uh, family crest crying and saying, it's dark, it's dark, I'm scared. <laughs> and so the ghost comes out and um, gives them a treasure map. Yeah, though not without like having to pretend to be dying first and then being like <laughs> poked by kids, like gawkers whispering about him just on the ground. And then he's being chewed up by a dog. <laughs> oh my god, this guy gets <laughs> so much abuse. Like, yeah, he's, he gets shit on pretty bad, actually, <laughs> in this. Because Mendo goes after him because he sees the carving on his back. Yeah. In this case, so he at doesn't least even he, really know why Mendo's after him. Yeah, at least in this case, he gives him a good smack on the head and then plans revenge against him, too. Yeah. This is funny, because a lot, a lot of this is basically, he wants to murder them. He yeah. wants to bury them no, in a hole. No, literally, yeah. He, he's planning to, like, bury Ataru alive in the hole. He's literally planning to, like kill Mendo by bashing him over the head and then crucifying him on his tree. Like, he is planning to murder these kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, he's he's a real scary ghost, but he's just an incompetent one. Mm-hmm. Um, this is great because it's got uh, Kosuke in here, and yeah. we all know a big Kosuke fan. Uh, and, of course, Ataru, they're, they're all there at night looking for the treasure. Uh, Mendo and Onsen are there, and, and Ataru just wails on on Mendo and just knocks him out with a shovel, which is just a just a great sight to see. Yeah. And then they uh, Onsen brings them all in, and then what do they do? They get drunk. Yeah, and, and Onsen's not supposed to have alcohol in that room. The sign explicitly says, do not bring alcohol in the room. Like, he yep. was breaking the rules. I think he'd be reprimanded if the yep. principal actually cared. But yeah, like, they fight over the sake, Mendo steals the sake, gets drunk off it, and then they all get drunk off it. (laughs) I think it's great. I just love the fact that, like, he shouldn't be having sake. They shouldn't be drinking sake. (laughs) Kosuke notices it and starts. (laughs) They just start taking a swig. Yeah. Uh, And they've already had some by the time Onsen kind of has finished his little mini lecture. (laughs) And then Mendo calls it a purifying drink when he has it in his sword. (laughs) And so, of course, they just all start drinking and fighting and partying. And uh, and Lum's just kind of hanging out there. She thinks it's a great time. Yeah. She's just enjoying And, of course, the chaos. next morning, the same um, Wawa, it's cramped with his family crest on it, is all over the school. Mm. And Ataru gets blamed for it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, he, the ghost, he didn't just stop with, like, the roof of the disciplinary room they're in like he wrote it all over the school like all over the front of the school like really big like very humiliating for Mendo. i just want to say that ataru is definitely the kind of kid who would underage drink yeah for sure he's definitely the kind of kid him and kosuke are the kind of kids who would definitely like you know swipe liquor from their parents liquor cabinet and stuff like that mm-hmm. and i think that's just awesome the fact that he just saw sake and just went yeah shit yeah i'm gonna have some of this <laughs> Yeah. I just think that's just an awesome little character reference to the kind of, like, guy Ataru is. Yeah, they're no stranger to degeneracy. Not that I ever did anything like that at all mm, when I was in high school. Really? Not. Mm. <clears throat> the, the age for drinking in Australia is actually 18. 
Hmm, that is lower so, than like, in US. your last year of high school. You can totally like kind of get alcohol and do whatever you want. Nothing's stopping you. <laughs> yeah, though it's, and, that's you know, not the case in Japan. Almost eighteen. You look eighteen. Probably mm-hmm. get it pretty easily. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Maybe Tomoviki follows Australian rules then. Though I think they're still seventeen at this point in the story. They are still seventeen. Yeah, I think he's just, he's just an underage. Like yeah. he, he's just he's there to have fun. Um, the next chapter is uh, Empty Ten. Enemy Ten. Did I read that? Oh, I did read that wrong. I should be wearing my glasses. I really Enemy like ten. this cover page with like intense shadow, like the word "strong buddy" upgrade, or like being typed across a shadow. Like, I think that's a fun touch. I think Takashi did some really cool art in these uh, title pages that play with, you know, the shapes of the characters and blend interesting things with the character art and background art. So this is another cool I think thing. those pages are one of the things where she could really kind of let herself kind of do whatever she wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and draw like big splash pages of characters doing kind of fun things that they wouldn't normally be doing or like, you know, draw it a bit more detailed, which I think is a, it's always fun to do that sort of stuff. Yeah. This one is a 10 centric episode as you um, have already, would already have guessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all sitting down to eat some, uh, some dinner and Ataru and 10 are gasp fighting yeah. as per usual. Fighting over food. I love how when they start fighting like Lum and Ataru's parents, they just lift up their part of the table and just continue their meal in another corner of the room like they're used you, to you'll this notice stuff. that they're on a separate table which is like the kids table yeah yeah i mean they're like, prepared for this they <laughs> they knew this was inevitable that this would happen so they're like okay they've started up let's just move and continue our meal at another part of this room here like i mean they apparently also, this has been going on for a while because Atari's mom is saying, hey, can you stop this? Like, night after night, this, you guys are doing this. You guys are fighting like this. And Ataru and Ten are very similar in terms of maturity uh, as well, which is why they which is why they get on each other's nerves so much. That's a joke later and in this course, chapter, that they're on the same kind of <laughs> wavelength because they're so immature. Exactly. And Ataru is so immature that he's even keeping a victory tab in a notebook <laughs> to say how many times he defeats Ten. <laughs> yep. Five for five. So now, of course, Ten wants to become stronger because Ataru is just picking on him all the time. And Ataru does pick on him a bit more. Like, sometimes Ataru is the victim and sometimes he's the perpetrator. Yeah. But in this stage, he's definitely more of a, a um, kind of more of the perpetrator. To give yeah. Ten a bit more motivation. I mean, he just smacks Ten while he's flying for no reason. Like, he's not bothering mm. him at all. He just he just comes up from behind and smacks Ten. And he sends Ten flying, like, to the roof. Like, he hits him hard. You gotta feel yeah. for Ten. Like, I think he's justified in his revenge schemes. But, like, he keeps getting really hurt like he gets trampled twice in this chapter by high school students Mm. who just don't notice him because i guess he's so small not only that but a turtle beats him in a race yeah like cherry like Like cherry just lets a a, a turtle go and the turtle beats him to the to the park and even the turtle's laughing at him yeah the turtle just mocks then and like that really God, gets to 10 because he tries to hang himself. He's like going to hang himself off by a rope, which is a really dark joke for like this little baby kid to (laughs) to consider hanging himself because he lost a race to a turtle. (laughs) 
<laughs> it is they it, that visual gag is once again it's very Looney Tunes. Yeah. Like the whole, it's, it, it, I wouldn't call it acceptable and it's certainly not acceptable these days, but the, every time like a, a character needs to overreact, it's either they're going to, they pull out a gun against their head or they, they hang a rope around a tree. Mm-hmm. And those are kind of like the two tropes and the, the rope around the tree is definitely a very popular trope in, in manga at this time. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because it's slight, like it's all slapstick without, you know, long-term lasting consequences. You know, these characters aren't going to actually get hurt or die no matter how much they're like trampled on or burned alive, you know, so you can take it all in good fun because of that. Yeah. So Ten has uh, some iron sandals on, mm-hmm. Geta. So he, you know, basically doing leg day. Yeah, I mean, Cherry gives them to him. Apparently Cherry walks around these all the time as part of his aesthetic training. So Cherry, and we don't see his bare legs often, but uh, he must uh, have quite the calves. I reckon, yeah, Cherry's pretty built, I reckon. I mean, the guy, <laughs> they, they obviously, like, say that his age is, like, near somewhere about 200, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's Every now a and again, very, so he's a very for old an guy. old man. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the very few, after uh, Ten gets sick of wearing the sandals and uh, and realizes that Cherry might be making fun of him, this is one of the very few times in Ursa Yatsura where Cherry gets his comeuppance and Ten actually just roasts Cherry. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't happen very often. Although he does get beaten a bit, he's never been electrocuted by Lum, and he usually just kind of walks out, being the comic relief. But he actually does get roasted by Ten here, which is pretty funny. Well justified. Yeah, in this case, definitely. So, of course, Lum decides to try and help out Ten, and <laughs> and, and working out Ten is pretty funny. He's a pretty funny guy to see. Yeah, oh, like a, the great detail here is that the gear that Lum gives Ten is a clear reference to the training gear in Star of the Giants, the classic, like, baseball series, over-the-top baseball series. Oh, yes. Oh, I've heard of that. Yes. I don't think I've ever seen that, so I probably didn't get that reference. Yeah. But that's, um... I mean, that, that like, gear on his chest is, like, a clear visual homage to the and gear that And this, of course, ends in Ten just having enough and basically destroying the entire roof of the house. <laughs> yeah. Declaring that I win. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he does. He finally got to crush Ataru. I mean, literally, in this case. Literally. Yeah, the, the roof falls on him. And Ataru really had it coming in this episode, because he was just really antagonistic towards Ten and will always take advantage of, of like, you know, Ten's bad luck. But this time was just, you don't feel bad for Ataru yeah. come the end of the chapter. Ataru is mean to Ten. Like, he, again, he mm. was attacking him unprovoked. Like, I think he's come up in here as well deserved. I just feel bad for Ataru's parents having to pay for the damages of all this. Their insurance premiums must be through the roof. Oh my gosh, could you only... <laughs> in this case, <laughs> literally. <laughs> So the next chapter is uh, Fossil Backcountry. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a bit of an odd chapter. Um, they all go on a hike, the usual team of, or what kind of becomes the usual team of Ataru, Lun, Shinobu, and Mendo, and occasionally Ten as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, 
Cherry pops up for no reason. Yeah. They're trying to camp on a, uh, like, have a picnic on a camping trail. Yep, this is the gag I mentioned before. And, they, and, and it's worth pointing out, like, uh, we kind of glossed over it, but, like, there was already a gag like this in the previous chapter of, like, after the group noticed that Ten's wearing the Iron Sandals, Cherry's face just pops up. He shocks everyone, and they're like, don't make a sudden appearance. So, two chapters in a row, Takashi repeats this gag of, like, this big buildup, and then Cherry's <laughs> face appears, and then everyone's taken aback. <laughs> and she never lets it go. She, she, it's just the the way to get Cherry into a story. Yeah, just kind of crowbar in there. <laughs> I mean, you can believe he'll just show up randomly. I mean, they justify it here by saying that he does aesthetic training on the mountain they're hiking on, and apparently he, mm. he's very infamous on this mountain because there are a lot of stories about people seeing a strange old man on this mountain. To the point that a camera crew for a reality show is, like, coming to try and film him. Film this mysterious <laughs> old person hiding on the mountain. Phantom This monk. is great. This is one of those really wacky Urusei Yatsara, you know, like, space technology chapters where they, they find some fossils. Mm-hmm. They dig up some fossils from the mountain. And they try and construct them in a meaningful way and effectively bring it back to life. These are all a mishmash. And it's like this crazy ostrich sort of weird-ass looking thing. They refer to it as kind of like a bird, a phantom bird. Like, it's a Mm. a weird mishmash of different fossils that obviously don't go together. Like, the body of this thing is a triceratops head. And its face (laughs) is made up of, like, a tribulite. Its horns are like uh ammonite fossils like it's it's made up of different creatures and it's all brought to life as like this weird chimera fossil creature by love man i think the galar scientists in pokemon must have gotten all their uh scientific know-how how to reanimate old fossils <laughs> from Lum, because uh, considering how the Galar Fossa Pokemon are also like mishmashes of obviously wrongly assembled skeletons of fossils, uh, this is a very similar thing. I would not be surprised if this was yeah, another this, this Galar does look Pokemon. A bit Pokemon-esque, yeah. like proto-Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> so the film crew comes up and see this weird this weird um, creature that starts running amok. And of course, um, Cherry falls out of a tree and kind of destroys the camera and all the footage. Yeah, although it's worth noting that the reason this happens is like, they ask uh, Ataru's group about like, hey, how can we lure out the mug? And Ataru says, hey, just set up some bait. So they set up the bait, but the phantom bird steals the bait. Cherry steals sausage links from the bird. The bird pecks the tree in anger. And that's why Fairy Cherry falls out and breaks the camera. Actually, the bird breaks the camera. And then they yeah, run the bird. to get a spare to try and continue filming Cherry and the Bird. But unbeknownst to them, even though they, they dedicate themselves to staking themselves out on the mountain until they see them again, Cherry and the Bird go back home with Ataru to the Moriboshi household. I, I do. There is something that kind of that tickles me a little bit seeing the television uh, in the last <laughs> few panels because Takahashi doesn't usually do a lot with like the internet or television or kind of a lot of modern things because a lot of her stories are timeless. So it's kind of good to see this kind of old 70s style television set here. Yeah. I just, I used to have a television very much like this when I was growing up in the 80s. So it was, it's kind of nice to see just that little piece of old wooden, wood type television mm-hmm. sitting in the corner while they're all watching it. I just, it just, it just tickles me a little bit there. Mm-hmm. The next one, chapter seven, 
Cavity Wars, um, where basically what I love about the um, front page of this chapter, the title page, is the robot. Yeah. The assistant nurse robot. Just uh, just the way Takahashi does a lot of the robots just always looks kind of funny because they've always got one big eye, almost like bolts for ears and always claws for hands sort mm-hmm. of thing. Like very, very kind of 60s B-movie sci-fi. Yeah. Like her, her mechanical designs are very interesting. I mean, even the dentist chair here, it looks like a very interesting uh, contraption, like an alien dentist chair. I think it's also interesting that this chapter starts out with three pages of basically a dream sequence. Wataru, like dreaming about getting a cavity and worried about Lum pulling out his teeth, which is a fear yeah. that pervades the rest of the chapter as uh, Taru catches cavities from 10 yeah because they're contagious Mm -hmm. cavities are contagious in uh in oni species yeah so 10's got it he bites ataru and of course they all end up at school when ataru gets a a um a toothache and the only way he can get rid of it is by biting someone else he has to bite six people so yep 10 also is there and he bites four more people so he also is on his way to getting rid of the cavities himself. But obviously, it's a big challenge to try and bite any other else. Cherry offers himself up, but no one wants to bite Cherry, of course. Uh, but then Onsenmark <laughs> appears, and they he, he thinks he's won them over to the moral good of saying, Hey, don't infect your other classmates. Even if it's the easier solution, you know, do the right thing and just do Lum's solution that won't hurt anyone else. And he thinks he's won them over as they go to hug him, but no, he's they're actually going to all bite him. Yeah, not only that, but Ataru's fears are realized at the end of the chapter when Onsen Mark is being put in the dentist chair yeah. and Lum is being the actual sadistic dentist we, uh, that Ataru thought she was going to be. Yeah, she's going to pull out all of his teeth as he... Which is pretty funny. It's crying for help. (laughs) There is one important little bit in this chapter that makes a point where everyone backs away from Ataru because they just know he's going to go biting people. And uh, Ataru actually says, I'm not the kind of jerk who would bite a helpless girl just to get rid of my own Mm -hmm. toothache. And the girls go, yeah, like Moroboshi's a creep, but he's never been violent with a girl. Yeah, he can be uh, chivalrous sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, so of course, like, Ataru's not going to attack the women to do that. The men, on the other hand, no, he's going to bite Mendo the first chance he gets. <laughs> uh, chapter 8, uh, Wash Away the Jade Blossom in the Tub. Uh, this is a um, a pretty fun chapter. Uh, I just like it how uh, Lum is just bothering Ataru yeah. for the most part. And he's looking for um, a part-time job. Just trying to fo- figure out what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And Cherry, of and, course, uh, pops It turns up. out he's looking for a part-time job and... Cherry literally explodes into the scene. Yeah, with a big boom. <laughs> and explosions and everything, and he just appears there. And a, a, what Ataru wants for a job is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course he wants... He wants something that pays around 100 bucks an hour, mm-hmm. is easy and fun with lots of beautiful women, and not too far from home. With meals with provided. Meals provided. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wants a really luxurious job. He ends up settling for a job at a... A public bat, of course, an alien public bat that well, mm. that pays a thousand, and he compromises on the, basically what amounts to ten uh, USD 
an hour because of the potential of washing it back to beautiful women. But of course, it's not going to work out that easily for Otaru. Because the bad sea washes at this place are, of course, of, you know, a bunch of weird alien creatures. And I like the detail that a lot of these aliens, we've actually kind of seen these designs before in some previous chapters. Notably, there's like this cyborg alien thing that's washing its back that... Yeah. That appeared in Lum's, uh, you know, wedding... The uh, matchup match party. party. Yeah, the matchmaking party that mm. uh, her dad put on for her. Like, that was a character design that appeared there. A lot of these character designs have appeared before in, like, big alien group shot scenes. So I like that kind of continuity of, like, even background characters, like nameless background characters can show up again. It is great because I, I do love the fact that then they're, they're not all just, it's not like Star Trek where they're all humanoid aliens. Mm. Like there are some really bizarre looking creatures here. Oh yeah. And I think that's great. Yeah. They're just weird they blobby like creatures or robotic creatures. There's like dinosaur like creatures, you know, all sorts of types. I like that uh, Takashi populates her world with a lot of weird things. There's even like a, a cat, like a creature that, it sort of looks like Natsuneko, but it obviously has, like, these kind of wings, so... Mm. Maybe a distant relative. An alien distant relative. So, of course, Ataru wants to get over to the women's side rather right. than washing the uh, the men's backs yeah. in the men's side. He also can't figure out how to wash the men's backs, because he keeps trying and they keep complaining because he gets it all wrong. Including, like, mm. one big alien who is, like... Hey, wash my back. And Ataru thinks he's washing his back, but it's actually his belly. And then the actual back of this alien has like a belly button. So it's very confusing. Uh, one detail that's also <laughs> worth noting is that the bat he's working on is Ajara bats. And the proprietor is a literal Ajara, like multi-heads creature. Though obviously he, they look very modern. But yeah, it's yeah. a fun detail. I do like that Ataru does eventually get over there because Ten kind of coaxes him over, saying it's paradise over there. Yeah, he literally like swims under the barrier in the bat to get to the other side. But of course, Lump mm. forces him back. And it, it at a lot of um, bathhouses in Japan, that is often the case. Like, it's basically mm. one big bath that's just segregated with a wall down the middle that is one side men's, one side women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's big and echoey, so you don't want to gossip too loudly because you can hear people on the other side. <laughs> I love when Ataru is going to talk over with Lum over the wall. Like, he climbs up the scales on the back of this dinosaur-like alien. Like, I like how he walks up this <laughs> alien guy's scales and the alien guy does not mind at all. It's just continuing to bait itself as Ataru walks up and down its scales and takes a shower. It's very, very much like a staircase, yeah. which is a great visual gag. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, Ben 10 and um, Oyuki are on the other side. Ataru is blindfolded and starts washing a statue. Yeah. And he gets his comeuppance because Ten blows up the statue and he sinks to the bottom of the bat as the <laughs> statue crushes him. Yeah. And Lum just doesn't look like she's in any particular hurry to save him there. Yeah, little uh, Next, we've got uh, Chapter 9, Domestic Spat Settlement. I love this chapter. I thought you I love would. the anime version of this chapter as well, mm-hmm. because it's it's got uh, Lum's dad in there, and I just love Lum's dad. Yeah, and th- this is another chapter where I'm talking about the title page, like some really creative things Takashi does, because the clothes of uh, Lum's parents blend in with her hair. 
like the clothes of yeah. her mom blends in with the body of her dad and her dad's body blends in with her hair. I just love that interesting playing with shapes to like create like the bodies of other characters and connect like the the forms of the other characters like just through this shared tiger stripe motif. It looks really good. It's a this is just a, a very fun chapter because uh uh, Lum's dad, and you kind of also just get a hint of where uh, Lum gets her temper from as well, mm. and it ain't her dad. No. <laughs> uh, of course, it starts with them uh, finally eating shrimp, kind of uh, seafood, and they're all planning to get their own share, but they've got a gate crasher, which is Lum's dad has come to stay for a while because he was kicked out of home. Mm. And I love the scale here because Lum's dad is a big man. He's a big, beefy, Yakuza-like looking dude. Mm -hmm. And I just love the fact that this guy is like kind of the head of his planet or the head of the army on his planet. um, And he gets kicked out of home and just decides to like go stay with his daughter for a while. I just love that dynamic. I mean, he's a pig. Like he stole his wife's food. Like he is a jerk. Mm. Like he kind of, yeah, <laughs> kind of deserves it. Like he's acting very entirely, saying, "Hey, I'm the breadwinner. I deserve to eat as much as I want." You know, she's just being unreasonable, <laughs> and she'll realize the error of her ways and apologize to me. And I like when he tries to give his lecture to all the boys in class of like, "Hey, don't let your uh, wives like walk all over you. You got to stand your ground." Everyone is like saying, "Boy, he's so pathetic." It's great because obviously the the story behind this is obviously like he's got a very old-fashioned way of thinking yeah. and even in the 80s like this was becoming a very old-fashioned way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh Lum's mom doesn't take any of that shit. She just kicks him out in a, yeah. in a, a great visual of him because you don't get to see his full body very often. You only kind of see his like torso and, and upper body. And when he kind of gets kicked out, you see him like in the full body suit, yeah. in kind of like a chibi form, <laughs> which is very cute. <laughs> he just They just look like big like onesie pajamas. Yeah. Lum's mom chases him out by whacking him, chasing him with a broom and whacking. She clearly succeeds in whacking him on the head because he has like little yeah. <laughs> bandages when he's finally thrown out the door. Uh, I also think it's interesting that in these flashbacks, when it's just her dad and mom talking, like her mom, Lum's mom speaks, you know, English. Like, I think it's translated for our benefit, like her just speaking, you know, normal, like Japanese slash English, whatever language you're reading this in. But of course, when Mm. she appears, you know, in present time, she interacts with other characters uh, outside of, you know, the uh oni planet like when she comes to earth at the end of this chapter like she's speaking in the mahjong tiles again so yeah and i love that i love that detail that she never actually speaks um japanese she never bothered learning the language because why she doesn't live there why would she yeah (laughs) and i do love in this like because lum's dad is in the class monitoring everything and he's just this big menacing presence sitting at the back of the classroom and of course, Onsen Mark doesn't want to blame Lum, so she he just blames Ataru, like going, you know, it's it's your, you know, it's your father-in-law. You do something about, it. And, and then they have a bit of a, a confrontation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I do like 
um, his speech about how to be a man, and even the men, the women in the class think that he's he's just a dick. Yeah. And the men in the class just think, this is sad. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Lum's mum turns up and, of course, uh, speaking in the Mahjong tiles, and then gets the crap beaten out of him again because Ten was being a little um, a little snitch. Yeah, and it's a great payoff because before Ten, you know, got Ataru in trouble because he lied to he lied to Lum's dad about you know what they were talking about in regards to him, like say saying that you know Ataru was insulting him. But then, of course, when Ten talks to Lum's mom, he's telling the truth. So. Like, yeah, <laughs> Lum's dad really just earned all, all the comeuppance he got there. Like, no exaggeration from Ten's part. Like, just pure his fault. And no matter what he says, he's obviously still submissive to his wife because mm. he's just running away and yeah. he's got his little onesie pajamas on. <laughs> you see his tiny, tiny little feet. He kind of looks like um, Chief Wiggum oh, from yeah. The Simpsons here a little bit, I think, <laughs> with his tiny little hoof feet. Yeah. Uh, the next chapter, chapter 10, The Grateful Raccoon. So this is uh, based on uh, a Japanese folktale about uh, shape-changing tanuki. Yeah, The Grateful Swan. Raccoon, so well, they, it's actually uh, about The Grateful Swan, uh, right? Because, like, it takes uh, a... A tsuru, so a crane, I think it's Crane, right, great. Grateful crane. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, originally this tanuki, when Atara rescues it, it's in the form of this crane. And then the tanuki basically mm. tries to act out the story of the Grateful Crane. But it yeah. fails because its transformation ability, unbeknownst to it, is not very good. No, no. It, it, it basically cosplays. Mm-hmm. So the uh, raccoon or tanuki can change via a leaf that it puts on its head. Like, that's where its magical transformation powers come from. So you'll see the leaf motif in here quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, and then he. But all he really does is just put on costumes to try and please Ataru, <laughs> and Ataru just thinks it's just super ugly, and yeah. um, goes into the cupboard and says, "You have to promise not to peek." Uh, and of course, he just fell asleep in there. <laughs> of course, a reference to the story of Grateful Crane, where you know mm. when they peek and see that what the crane is actually doing, because the crane transformed into like a beautiful woman. That's right. In yeah, this story. is a mishmash of two stories. Yeah. So the reason why it told the person it was taking care of like not to look in the look when while it was doing its thing was because it mm. you know was in its true form as a crane when it's like producing whatever riches it was doing. Like I think it was like laying eggs or something. But yeah, so obviously when that secret is exposed, the crane just flew away. Here, it's like the Tunuki is like trying to do the same thing. It's like literally just read the Grateful Crane storybook that Ten had and got all this idea. So it's just mm. trying to act out the story, even though there's no reason for it. Like there's no reason it would have to leave like when Ataru realizes what it's doing or whatever. But Ataru wanted him out anyway, so yeah, <laughs> good riddance. <laughs> and so it tries in vain the Tanuki to like change leaves into money, but it fails multiple times, and it takes like hours, over three hours. So they just like look in the closet and they find that it was just sleeping. So yeah, like and eventually, like it try it lives out the ending of Grateful Crane because like Ataru. Like, calls it a raccoon, and so that makes it realize, wait, you know that I'm a raccoon? Oh, now that you have seen my true form, I cannot stay. So it flies off, like, in the crane form again. 
So I like that. I just like that this Tanuki, for some reason, thought that this entire time it was actually transforming to human instead of like just dressing up. <laughs> he had no idea how incompetent he was. <laughs> he really thought he had Ataru fooled. And I just like that Ataru's just kind of had enough of this shit by the end of the chapter. He's just like, I just want this. I just, just get out. I want to go to bed. Yeah, but unfortunately. And his last line is gross. My futon is all covered in drool. Yeah, dang. <laughs> Poor Ataru. So uh, the chapter 11, which is the last chapter yeah. in this volume, is Mendo Residence Masquerade Ball. Yeah, this one starts off so with this the return. So this is a very fun. Oh yeah, this is another like crazy chapter involves a lot of characters. And it starts with like the return of uh, Torijima. Tens working with Torijima as like, well, like Torijima could not care less. It's just smoking a cigarette as Ten is trying to train it to help it attack Ataru. But it does not care. It's just a lazy cat. No, he is. He's like the boss cat of the neighborhood uh, that's kind of striped like a tiger. And he bursts the uh, balloon with Ataru's face on it by flicking his cigarette at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is just, it's a great kind of um, Yakuza motif there, like a gangster motif. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, Kurako turn up, and the Kurako are the... Um, the servants of uh, the Mendo household. Namely Ryoko. They mainly Namely serve Ryoko. Her. And Kurako, are, they're called that because they are from the, the old yeah, plays. Yeah, plays. You know, they, they have completely games. dressed in black. Yeah. You know? So they turn up uh, and invite Ataru to the masquerade ball. And of course, Ataru goes, ha, you know, me and Ryoko sounds good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, uh, Mendo is completely against this idea. Yeah, of course, he doesn't want Ataru anywhere near his sister. I like kind of the Chinese dress that Ryoko is wearing. Like, it's clearly got that kind of pattern in her hairstyle that way, though she's not wearing, like, a a skirt or anything. She's wearing just, like, some pants. But it's a good fashion. But, yeah. It is a good look. Yeah, I mean, this isn't really a ball, though, that they're preparing for. It's really a battle, as it turns out. Because, uh, I mean, they don't have to dress up very elaborately, just with, like, a mask. And Atari wears, like, this goofy cat mask with, like, weird eyes and teeth and whatnot. And uh, they are given weapons, and immediately they are attacked. I like that one of the attackers is wearing, like, a Mo- Ultraman mask. There's some fun yeah, little Yeah, that is there. great. There's a lot of references. There's even more in the anime version of this. Yeah, yeah. The, and Ataru's mask is just, like, that of... He looks like a stray cat, yeah. effectively. Yeah. Like, it's not classy at all. He just kind of puts on this, like, wacky cat mask, and he's, like, wearing a kind of like a horizontal striped T-shirt. Mm. So so not very dapper or formal at all, but um, it works for him in this episode uh, because everyone just attacks him. Mm-hmm. But then everyone, it basically becomes a giant free-for-all. And, of course, it's obvious who Mendo is wearing the octopus mask. Yeah. And they they uh, they get their, their, uh, their weapons and... This is kind of um, the start of uh, the hammer versus katana here, I think. Yeah. Because Ataru chooses the massive mallet, whereas, of course, um, Mendo has his signature... Katana. uh, Katana. And this happens quite a lot Mm -hmm. going forward, where Ataru just has like a big mallet that counters, like a big comical mallet that counters the um, suave Mendo's katana. Yeah. And then Ataru, with his mallet, beats up, like, people dressed up as, like, Kintaro and Peach Boy. 
and I don't know what the third one is. I can't recognize, but I think there there are, are some. What I'm thinking might even be uh, some of them are a lot of them are from folklore. Yeah. Like you've got um, Kintaro and Momotaro. Some of them, one of the masks look looks like it could be like a celebrity, maybe from that particular time yeah. or someone from the 20th century. What one of these? But I just people don't know who it is. It's dressed like the character in Obake no Kyutaro. I'm just noticing. Hmm. It's uh. This is just a really super fun chapter. Yeah. And just the fact that Mendo gets the shit beaten out of him, he's just so bad at winning. (laughs) And Ryoko puts on a a big teary show for her brother that's had the crap beaten out of him, and she always wears that creepy skull mask as well. Mm -hmm. And she tries to fight for her brother's honor after he's been beaten by Ataru. And fight Ataru, mm. but and of course her stage hands like hold Ataru in place so it can make it easier for her. And she uses these nunchucks, and of course she uh, is not good at using them because she hits her own stage hands. And then, <laughs> yeah, like, then Lum just knocks out Ataru and drags him away. Yeah, he gets, he actually gets pretty close to Kyoko. Yeah. Uh, and is stopped on two occasions. Like he, like he goes in for like a flying kiss, and is like stopped at the very last second by Mendo grabbing his his ankles, and then stopped by Lum mm. with like a like a big oni oni club, like yeah, a big oni club, <laughs> yeah, which is great. And of course, he gets dragged away, and the fight's still going on. Yeah. It's a, it's a, just a great, it's a great little scene. I reckon they could have done two chapters out of this. Yeah, I mean, the anime turned this into a full fledged episode. There's a lot to flesh out here. But yeah, I mean, mm. Ryoko chapters are great because her whole gimmick is that she's very theatrical. That's why she has these stage hands following her. That's kind of just her mannerism is just to take things to like the most dramatic extreme. And she loves melodrama for her own amusement. So I I really thought this was another fun, like chaotic Ryoko, like making this high stakes situation uh, just for crazy insanity to happen. Uh, I guess one last note, I d- though. What I did like about Onsen Mark in this volume is that you do find out a little bit more about him. Yeah. Like, um, he is trying to, he does try and... He's trying to be a good educator. He's he, trying he's to reach out to He's not a bad teacher. Yeah. He's, got a, he's obviously got, like, a lot of problems with this class, but he does try and impress them sometimes. Yeah. And just by the fact that he's drinking sake on school property, you kind of just learn that little bit more about him. Like, it's kind of a little bit sad. Yeah, I mean, it's a- Like, you know, he's kind of lonely and a bit- Yeah. You know, is he, and, you know, he does, he does forgive his students and he is, you know, big on, you know, important, you know, self-important teachers, lectures and stuff like that. So- Yeah. It's nice to see him get that- tiny sliver of character yeah there's a lot of humanity to onsen mark like he's a strict educator but he has his own vices like he's dealing with a lot so of course you know he wants a good drink every now and then but what he really wants is the respect of his students like he wants to impress them by you know telling them a really scary story he wants to reach out to them and appeal to the good in them to do the right thing you know he's trying his best for this class but they're making it very difficult for him extremely difficult and that because they don't respect him at all mm-hmm. <laughs> okay chapter 12 kurama again yes so this uh introduces the uh not long lost but it's been a while <laughs> since we've seen her it's been about five volumes the third chapter of volume two was her last appearance and this return arc for kurama does indeed reference her last appearance so it's a nice bit of continuity there but one really interesting thing to note about this chapter is that I believe in 
its original publication in Shonen Sunday, it was published in color. I believe the first couple pages were full color, but as we go on in the rest of the chapter, it probably was partial color. The kind of red and grayish tones they would do back in the 80s when they wanted to publish like a chapter like full color, quote unquote, but it's not like a full spectrum <laughs> of colors. It's like one hue of red and then grays, but it's in color technically. And you can tell that this was probably published in color just by the quality of the art. There's a little bit of blurring on the line work. Mm. And it definitely feels like a big contrast compared to the traditional black and white artwork, which if we compare with the rest of the chapter, it looks a lot cleaner. This definitely looks like a lot of this was drawn in perhaps watercolor. Takahashi would go to that, but in some sort of style, some sort of pen work that has aged a bit that has led to kind of this sort of blurring effect on the line work after all these years. Yeah, and it is interesting to note that they did release two volumes of all of the uh, Urusei Yatsura that was in, quote, full colour, end quote, (laughs) in two parts in Japan recently, and they did actually release it in the West, but in French, (laughs) not English. (laughs) Man, I wish we would get color pages in these releases because I would really love to see this artwork in full color or the color it was originally printed in like the Dragon Ball of these omnibuses based on the uh, Kanzen bonds in Japan they retain a lot of the original full color chapters which are really interesting to read not all of them but a lot of them and I especially would have loved to see this opening two-page spread in color because it's such a beautiful composition really a sequence of you know comics paneling like it's it's so great like this first panel we're seeing from a low angle shot the tennis ball fly high up in the air then we see Lum in a big pose transposed on this in the background it's just such a great way to indicate this sequence of events here we see Lum prepare to strike the ball then we go to what is in the main background of this two-page spread. is just the scene of Lum hitting the ball towards Shinobu. And we're seeing through the arc of the ball and its direction towards Shinobu. It guides our eye to the Shinobu's big pose on this page. Where we see the ball hit the ground, go past her. And it's such a great way to lay out this page and communicate the sequence of events. I just absolutely love this illustration. It's great because it also it also tells you exactly everything you need to know. They're in the forest, so they're obviously mm-hmm. not in the city. They're playing a high-class sport, which is back in the 80s, tennis was a very kind of high upper-class or upper-middle-class sort of sport that a lot of people who wanted to be seen as, you know, perhaps wealthy or wealthier than they were would play mm. this sport a lot. Uh, I played. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was forced to play tennis. By my parents in the uh, late eighties and early nineties, they they always they thought it would be a very good experience and a good social experience for me. I hate tennis now. <laughs> well, AC, I'm a child of the late nineties, but my parents also made me play tennis, and not only that, they made me play golf oh, as wow. well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so you, you got the double there? Oh yes, <laughs> yes. All of the so-called sports that are popular with the upper class or at least businessman type since my dad works at a mm. a business school but yeah 
I think that this definitely tells us that Mendo probably took the gang out to play tennis here, considering, you know, who else would build a giant tennis court in the middle of a forest? But it's also an interesting true line <laughs> because, of course, it means that Akoku, Mitaka, Godai's uh, rich rival, he is a professional tennis coach, so... Yeah, interesting connection there of, like, tennis being associated with the rich or upper class in Takashi series. Hmm. I think that's kind of important to note because golf is, like, a super important networking mm-hmm. sport for for businessmen, especially in, in Japan. And tennis is a little bit more relatable. Yeah. I suppose it's a little bit more something that, like, regular people can do, like, you know, because it requires a smaller space, you only need a racket, not a whole set of clubs. Yeah. Uh, And younger people were kind of more into tennis than golf at the time. It definitely tracks with how it's presented to me on a Koku 2, because Mitaka is mainly coaching, you know, very young adult women. So, yeah, it's like, it's more of a sport for the young, more of a casual type of sport rather than this networking type of sport yeah definitely so the next page we've got uh, kuruma who's um obviously in a in a stasis pod mm-hmm. in suspended animation a clever little detail is that you kind of see an alarm clock next to her yeah. <laughs> in the pod as if it's going to wake her up sometime soon <laughs> the crow minions are there and they've got a bit more of a, a character uh this time you've, you've got like yeah. the overseer old wise man yeah, he's, who's ordering everyone around? He's set and in the young ways laborers. of these <laughs> rules and traditions that he even he doesn't understand, but he just perpetuates because that's what he's always done. Meanwhile, you have his young subordinates who are really getting fed up with all these pointless rules, and they just want to get the job of getting Krama hooked up over it so they can go home. And you definitely see their tires comes through with the fact that they're smoking like these giant cigarettes. I mean, in proportion to them, they're human-sized cigarettes, but they're like the size of their own bodies. Mm. And they're like, they take frequent smoke breaks to express their disdain, their lack of interest and investment in this. And they just want to get this over with. So as soon as they yeah, see there's a lot of uh, working guy, class undertones here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they're very resentful of the boss, who does nothing. As we see, it's like all the crow mm. servants, they're carrying this capsule pod through the forest. I don't know why they're carrying it through the forest, but they are. And all the elder Tengu is doing is that he's just like guiding them, or rather he's just ordering them around while blowing a whistle. He's not putting in any work into actually lifting this so he very much deserves no effort when the tennis ball hits one of the subordinates and the capsule comes crashing down and sliding on the hill to also get caught up in that and taken for a ride and get conked out when it crashes and of course it falls on mendo ataru does a half-assed way of trying to warn him which is also kind of funny mm. but as soon as he sees it's karuma Sorry, Kuruma. <laughs> he just goes straight in for the kiss. Like he knows, he knows the rules. He knows what's going on. And he goes right in, and just um, the the translation here of Mendo, who pushes Ataru aside immediately and says, "Wowza!" <laughs> yeah, uh, we- like he immediately forgets his anger to Ataru for not warning him adequately, and he's just transfixed with a very beautiful woman. Very Mendo. Uh, and of course, there's a bit of discussion. Yeah, very Mendo. And Wowzer is um, something that I associate deeply with Inspector Gadget. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, because he used to say wowzers uh-huh. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there might be a bit of a reference there uh, from the translators. Once again, as you said, very 80s. Uh, there's a bit of back and forth between Ataru and the, um, and the Crow minions. Mm-hmm. And of course, Ataru immediately kind of pops the, pops the capsule open and immediately goes in for a kiss. Uh-huh. But it's important to note that this is happening right after the, her last appearance. Yes, yes. They make reference. To, like, literally, the reason why she's in the capsule is a consequence of her last appearance of being basically stuck in the hot spring after, uh, during the entire chapter where, Taru, they were in like this snowy, uh, uh, they were going skiing and then they encountered this woman in, in the lodge. And like during that entire chapter, like Karama was divorced from the main plot because she was stuck like in this hosting because it was so cold. She didn't want to get out. And so she was stuck there the entire time. And it's interesting because we see in the hot spring with her are some cameos. Jotaro from... The bad boy Masashi street party we talked about, and the grateful mm-hmm. Tanuki that tried to repay Atari's kindness as well. So those are like some fun little And I think this there. is kind of uh, explains why she was in the forest. Because, uh, you know, this is probably a spring chapter because they're out playing sport. Uh, you know, the snow's melted. Um, she was finally able to get out of the hot spring. Yeah. She wanted a do-over, so they put her back into suspended animation, and she just happened to be in the same forest. Yeah, but it's interesting. Like, they've been carrying her through this forest for... I mean, it's been years since Karama's last appearance. Obviously, yeah, in series, it really has been years, yeah. It can't have been that long. It's probably only, like, a few months. But still, just for a few months, they've been <laughs> just carrying Karama, like, through <laughs> this hill. Like, man, you'd think that they would have just called the spaceship over and may have been more efficient about it, but no, I guess they, they really mm. want to just do this manual labor. I guess Karama really couldn't get out of the hot spring, so they had to wait till it got warmer. Then they put her in the capsule immediately to carry out there. I guess yeah. we do see that it does look to be springtime when she's put in the capsule. So I guess she waited for yeah. months for the snow to melt, for it to get warm before going in there. <laughs> like the, the timeline, the continuity of this is very funny when you scrutinize it. Um, also, when, when you look at how long Urusa Yatsura actually goes mm-hmm. for and the continuity, of course, it's, it's what we call a floating timeline because Ataru is always 17 years old. And he's always in the second year of high school. Yeah. You know, he never graduates. He never he never goes any further. I think they get into uh, their third year at some point, they? I feel like we have seniors at some point, don't they? Towards the end? I'm not... I think... No. I think um, everything, everything kind of remains... It's kind of very much... A lot of this is Looney Tunes and the fact that, you yeah. know, there's a lot of violence. It, I mean... It often ends on... Yeah... You know, a silly note that when nothing is resolved, but you know, if an important character is introduced or reintroduced, you know, it does show its continuity there. A bit. Yeah, I mean, it's very animated sitcom You know, characters don't really age that much, even though their situations may change, and you would think that some time has passed. And even though multiple occasions of the same holiday pass. You know, somehow there's, yeah, there's continuity Christmas with several that. Times. Even though there's continuity <laughs> with that, that, oh, this has happened before, without celebrating this holiday hmm. this way. But it isn't a year later or years later, even though this holiday keeps happening. You know, it's like how an, you know, American dad, there's like this giant story arc of like the Smith family having a conflict with Santa Claus. And it's happened, it builds upon it year after year, but it's not like, the character's age, like it's not like Steve grows out of high school or Haley finally graduates college or anything. 
so it's kind of like that. No, it just it just kind of floats around. Yeah, and I, I kind of like that because Uruse Yatsura started off as a very kind of seventies look Mm-mm. at what was going on in Japan at the time. Yeah, and then it didn't really kind of take off until the eighties. It took off a little bit before then, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't serialized to the extent. Yeah. Like, um, Ursa Yatsura was a very kind of contained storyline that had more or less a conclusion Yeah, uh, in its first initial run in 1978. I think it definitely does adapt with the years, though, to, you know, adopt, like, what is going on in the culture of the time. So, in that way, it also reflects, like, how a sitcom will also adapt to changing technology and stuff. It doesn't stay stuck in the same year, even though the characters aren't aging. I think, like, a great example of this, uh, to go back to, I guess, another manga comparison, is Detective Conan. Like, that started in 94, where they, you know, they didn't really have, like, a lot of cell phones or all the technology you have now, and now if you read Detective Conan, the technology is of the modern day, even though in story, the month should only have been a couple months that have actually progressed in the timeline. So that that dude should have died of old age by now. I'm uh, just saying, even if you even if he magically went to being back to being a kid, he would be older literally by now than he was when he started. He would have died <laughs> in his thirties. You're saying, or like, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. I hate Detective Conan. Oh, no. Oh man. And one of the reasons one of the reasons I hate this is I I think because it was it's. Oversaturated well, in Japan. Well, I can see that. Like, yeah, I mean, it's been going Detective on for Conan, years. and it's just nothing really happens. And I did used to watch it a bit with my wife because my wife really likes it. But after a while, it was just like it's like going nothing ever happens, and they keep teasing that something's going to happen. <laughs> and oh my god, I just just somebody killed this kid. Come I on, mean, things do happen in Detective Conan, dies. but yes, it takes a long time for those things to happen. It, it really has dragged <laughs> out its story. Uh, I, I love Conan yeah, myself. Literally decades. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love Conan myself, but yes, I mean, I think that's a fair complaint that it this, these storylines they tell in that series take literal years when and they are constantly <laughs> interrupted by, you know, especially in the anime, a lot of filler that is not really advancing the plot at all. But here's the answer, luckily, yeah. as an episodic story, doesn't really have that problem. It also ended after 10 years, so it did not overstate. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was only on, around for about a decade. No, it, it was, it didn't, it's not like it was The Simpsons that it's still on, though Simpsons goes ups and down. Uh, regardless, one That's thing true. I wanted to point out uh, before the flashback of what was going on in Karama is that when the servants like noticed that the elder... Tengu was conked out. They start kicking him, beating him with a hammer, calling him slave <laughs> or back at like a lot of uh, worker aggression being, you know, given some cathartic. Like rise up, I like yes, it. Yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> so good. But then they notice Mendo is very handsome, and it's like, oh, you know, this guy is pretty enough. The princess likes superficial good looks. Yeah, he'll do. Let's and they try to force him to kiss Karama, even though Mendo, you know, he has his reservations. Even though he's a womanizer, Mendo is kind of a little bit prudish. I mean, he doesn't like to 
engage in public displays of affection. So when all the people watching, no, Mendo's want... all show. Yeah, I think like yeah. Mendo. Mendo wants the love of women without actually committing to anything. Yeah. Whereas Ataru kind of wants the love of women and is prepared to commit to just about anything. Oh yeah, Ataru is much more shameless <laughs> than Mendo. Mendo tries to keep on the airs of propriety at the very least, but. Yeah. You know, even though he has his reservations, you know, it doesn't take that much effort to co- convince him to go in for the kiss. Mm. But of course, Shinobu foils him from pull- literally <laughs> pulling him away. And that gives Ataru the opportunity while still wrapped up in the fishnet. He literally just jumps up with Lum still clinging on him to jump <laughs> at Karama and kiss her smack down on the lips once again. So even though Karama went through this entire scheme to try to get someone else to kiss her to find a new destined partner, it's just a taro all over again. They really are they do our Dodessies really are intertwined. There is a destiny there between them. Mm. Not a good no. one. It's just a destiny. Yeah. No matter what she does, she always kind no. of winds up stuck in the middle of a time. Yeah, she's just caught up in his misfortune. That's their relationship. Yeah. <laughs> but she wakes up and notices Mendo and she thinks, oh, hey, this must be the guy who kissed me. He's a total dream. But yeah, we did it. I gambled with destiny. I won. <laughs> and the <laughs> Tengu servants are like, eh, let's, let's not tell her the truth. You know, they feel bad. Yeah. That... She's under this uh, misassumption, but they they aren't going to tell her the truth because it's it's easier if things proceed like this than having to deal with a taru all over again. And the the next chapter is sealed with a kiss. Yeah. Uh, I love Lum's expression here. Yeah, she's she's like go- of says, just like going ha ha go yeah, go. go for it. Like she, when, she's uh... cheering them up because like if they you know seal the deal, then that means a taru won't be able to go after Kram anymore. So, like, she's all for it. And that definitely holds true throughout the chapter. It's like, in Kram's scheme to hook up with Mendo, she's like, yeah, yeah, go for it. Hey, hey, the covenant or the the chamber that you're building to have sex in is built. Like, go in, go in, you know? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like this covers page two because it's like painting the, the heroine is Kram, the hero is Mendo, villain is Atari, Atari is being like, pulled back by the crow servants i love this very artful illustration of uh it's kind of uh kind of gone with the wind between um between kuruma and mendo just these beautiful uh leaves and vines and grapes uh like Mm. encompassing them like surrounding them it's it's really stunning it's a good contrast between like them drawn like prettily like this and then of course Lum and Atari in the background drawing more in uh, Takashi's uh, conventional style. And we've got, um, we've, this kind of starts with a, a bit of a recap of what happened last mm-hmm. time, which we don't really need to talk One about. But we've got the, st- the, the crow minions, yeah. the Tengu, are just kind of just kind of hanging out and they're complaining about being worked overtime yeah. without pay. Like uh, we mentioned, and like the- they're smoking human sized cigarettes, complete with using a human sized lighter. <laughs> Again, it's like the size of their body and they're. We're throwing up big wafts of smoke. Like, they, they really want to numb themselves with the nicotine here. One thing that's interesting to me is that one of these... These crossovers start beginning to address Mendo by a nickname of Old Pompadour. I guess... <laughs> I guess Mendo has a pompadour. It's not that pronounced, but, uh, yeah. No. 
it's kind of funny though. Mm, I wonder what in the original Japanese the nickname was. Yeah, I really need to get my hands on the original volumes legally so I can kind of translate this as I go along a bit more mm. because I'm sure that there's there's some translations here that um, obviously they need to take a bit of liberty, yeah. They need to take on a little bit of western style yeah. just to make things kind of flow a little bit better. Sometimes they kind of lean in one direction more than the other one and or sometimes they just go for a hard and fast straight translation which also I find doesn't always work. But you know that's uh, that's just one of the trappings of being a translator I suppose. What's great here is that they've got a panel discussion about the proper dating etiquette. Yeah, and of course... And Lum is just off to the side, building a gun. She's prepping her gun to shoot a Kurama when she comes around in. I think it's interesting. <laughs> I think this is the first time we are shown that Shinobu is also the secondary in the student council. So it's basically the student council's all our main characters. Atari's got present Vendo's Yeah, she's the secretary, isn't yeah. she? That's right. <laughs> but like, yeah, all the class... Ecosia is pointing this out. It's like, this entire all the people putting on this panel, oh, they all have terrible dating etiquette. Like, this is kind of how are we supposed to learn from you guys? Like, proper dating etiquette when you have such bad ones, and then it gets into an <laughs> argument about like comparing Mendo and Nataru, and the girls, of course, come to Mendo's defense, saying, unlike Morboshi. You know, Morboshi is driven by pure libido. Mendo isn't. He's a man of principles. Actually, I want to go back a page <laughs> just to comment on the crow servants again. Just to, I mean, this really mm -hmm. pronounces their tardiness because they're like telling the elder, you know, let's let's just keep our mouth shut and tell, um, have Karama consummate with Mendo so we can go home. Like their tardiness really come out coming out here, and they also. <laughs> let's slip that they're not working with overtime pay so another grievance that onto the pile there they they are I, I think i think that means that they're not motivated yeah like they don't care about doing a good job they just want to get the job no finished. like the elder is such a bad boss but yeah i mean he also is so bad at his job and he's so inattentive that he let karama leave already to go see Mendo, which brings us back to the classroom scene. So Mendo is lamenting that he let his own principles hold him back from kissing Karama. And <laughs> of course Lum is preparing to shoot Karama when she comes around with her gun. And speak of the devil, big gust of wind blowing through the classroom causing a huge mess, toppling desk. Karama has come to the class and Lum points her gun at her, uh, but Otario gets in the way. I just love the fact that Lum is once again committed, like, is willing to commit, like, you know, yeah, murder in cold blood. Yeah, she really is. Like, this is a side <laughs> of Lum we have not seen, I guess, since Karama's last appearance. Like, this era of, like, Lum being so... Uh, overprotective of Otaru or so jealous of other women that she will outright try and kill them. And I think one of the one of the the things that kind of sets it off here is that uh, Lum, despite the fact they are in school and she is a member of school, she's not in school uniform. She's yeah. just in her normal bikini. So I think that kind of demonstrates that she's ready for action. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, she could probably fight better in her regular bikini rather than the school uniform, for sure. Probably mm. more moves. So of course, Kuruma shows up and everyone goes, "Oh, what's your relationship to Mendo?" Mm. 
And you know, Mendo's uh, Mendo's quite okay with um, with the little hug he gets. Uh, and they keep trying to uh, silence Ataru, who's trying to tell them the truth. Yeah, they also are trying to is the truth. Silence the elder because they tied him up and they're lying to Crown and saying, "Oh, you know, he's he's asleep because he's so relieved you found a, such a wonderful new suitor. <laughs> he's probably not much longer." As well. <laughs> I wonder if they would like outright try to murder the elder just to get him out of the way. They have so much disdain <laughs> for him, but. They really try to put on the celebratory act here. Like, they, they're literally throwing, like, confetti around Karama and Mendo when she's she's hugging Mendo. And mm. when she's saying, like, I finally found my prince. But, yeah. And uh, it's funny because, like, Lum, who was willing to commit murder, is now, like, going, oh, I'll help you have a um a bridal chamber. Oh, yeah, she's, like, clapping. It's basically, like, <laughs> like, like, a giant sphere which they can consummate in. Oh, my gosh, she, like, claps. When they make the vow to like have a kid, like she, she's very happy with this development. Uh, it's not just Ataru they try to silence either. They also try to silence Shinobu when she tries to speak up. Like, yeah, they really don't want anyone to get in the way. They just want this over with. But yeah, Lum does help build the love nest, which does creep Endo up. That they're like a they build it in the schoolyard, like and so. She expects, it's going to be one of the least romantic places on she Earth. She expects Mendo and her to have sex in, like, this capsule, like, in front of their school, like, that is, and being watched by other people. And I like the way that she just, like, goes about just talking about what they're doing. Like, she uses words like creating progeny is a holy right. You young have first day mm. out of it. Like, she, she treats this kind they, of they like... They skip around the word sex yeah. is what they're doing. Yeah. It's like, they don't want to mention it by, by name. Her, her <laughs> approach and the way she thinks about sex is like very much, oh, this is a, a sacred activity that is also a means to an end. So it's like, even though yeah, she... Yeah, it's, it's a royal right. Yeah, even <laughs> though she, it's clear she herself is also just into it for the idea of just having sex with a handsome dude you know <laughs> yeah it's it's very very superficial yeah. i love that um ataru of all people calls lum a traitor here yeah <laughs> when she's helping to build this and of course mendo starts to chicken out he's getting cold feet um he just keeps trying to run away and she is like literally dragging him to this love hotel. Yeah, she whacks him with a hammer to <laughs> to knock him out so that she can drag him. There is there is actually a little bit of fourth wall breaking here wherein uh Mendo is actually leaving the panel. Oh my gosh, that's so Like on the good. next page Mendo is actually trying to get out of the panel oh, itself. Yes. And so his arm is actually extending like out of the book, which is really funny. I love that so much. It's also worth noting inside the love nest is like baby toys and a sign that says abundant fertility and like a drawing of a, a kitten. It's like <laughs> it's it's both like I guess a sex chamber, but it's also going to eventually serve as the baby's crib, I guess, with all these toys. It's, so it's very weird. Th this is kind of a reference also to a love hotel, mm. which are... Uh, Do love hotels have a, baby a very, toys? Very... Like, there's literally a pacifier no, in here. But, but they do have massive beds and chandeliers and weird pictures on the wall. <laughs> they don't usually say abundant fertility, mind you. But there are a whole host of very interesting and strange love hotels all across Japan. Mm. 
Uh, in case you don't know what a love hotel is, uh, it's a hotel where you can stay overnight, sure, but you can also go there for a rest, you know, for four or so hours during the day for like 4,000 yen or something like that, like 40 bucks. You can you can go there with your partner of choice and just, you know, just relax. Mm. And a lot of these places also like look very flash on the inside and have uh, spas and massive beds and karaoke and stuff like that. Mm. They're um, one of the one of the things that I actually really miss about Japan, because there's no way you could get away with something like that in Australia. That you just have um, you just have people camped outside them at all times to to witness all the infidelity that was going on. Ah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Japanese people are a lot more subtle than that, apparently. <laughs> so once again, uh, this kind of ends with uh, Mendo basically. Trying to skip out, and Kuruma learns the truth. Yeah, I like that this is a payoff of the runner of people interrupting other people when they're speaking. You know, when they're trying to tell yeah. the truth. Like, in this case, the payoff here is that Ataru does uh, complete the truth. Instead of, like, before everyone is interrupting, we're just, like, yelling over people when they're trying to say the truth. Like, Ataru does yell over the elder, but, like, he, he basically does confirm that, yes, he was the <laughs> one who kissed her. So it's a good payoff there mm. to that running gag. But yeah, Karama is very shaken up about it. And so she just shuts everyone out of the love nest and then just sleeps in it with like an ice pack over her head because she's like sick. She thinks she's having a nightmare. But that does bring us to the final chapter of this three-parter, Goodbye Covenant. This is great. Uh, it starts off with uh, Kuruma just basically throwing darts at Ataru's face, which is, <laughs> it's a very kind of, Takahashi does this quite a lot in her, uh, in a lot of her, her manga, is just like, you know, if you hate someone, here is a very visual representation of the fact that you hate them. He's literally just throwing darts at someone's face. And it's face. like an interactive monitor, though, because like the Ataru yeah. on the screen he catches her dart in his seat and spits it out and then blows a kiss at her, which takes her aback. So why would they program this AI that's... Why would they program this like an AI that has said this? Why isn't this just a picture of Ataru? It's, but it's like a... It's an AI that can react to things being thrown at it or interacting with it. What's great here is that they keep reiterating that it's the hmm. law. It's the law. These are the rules. You have to follow the rules. Ataru has kissed you twice. There are no more do-overs. You can't do it again. Mm -hmm. And so they try and discover, hang on a minute. Like, this is the law. Where does the law come from? Why is this the law? Like, they actually start questioning things. Yeah. Um, so they decide to go back into the database and they go back through, like, the elder ancestral, like, the elder ancestral elder, yeah. and the elder elder ancestral elder, and the elder 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 ancestral yeah. elder. Which is actually quite difficult to say. Yeah, um, uh, we can, are not going to try and describe who the eldest of these elders are, because there are 120 generations of these elders. So, <laughs> like, G has to go through all of them, but while he's doing that, Kurama leaves. I do think it's also interesting, like, these elders, like, just like that Ataru uh, on the dartboard, I guess these are also, like, AI with their own ability to interact with people, because they can communicate with like the people who are asking them information and they they react like people like they they get kind of flustered and they sweat inside the screen and stuff so it's, it's very goofy it's like yeah they're ai but i guess they have been programmed with the memories and the personalities of all these previous elders so like with the final yeah, which elder, is, i think is a clever idea yeah it's a good bit of exposition there yeah 
So Ten turns up for the first time in quite a few chapters, actually. Yeah, and he's like blown. It's always good to have a bit of a break from Ten, I find. Yeah, but it, I think like he's, he's funny. But I think he's used well here. He's caught up in this tornado yeah. created by Karama on her way to school. I like how Mendo recognizes the tornado, mm. and then he immediately whips out a comb <laughs> and starts brushing his hair. <laughs> mm. And so, of course, Kuruma comes back. And just, you know, starts pamming it on with Mendo again. Yeah, but then Tan wakes up and then he proposes to Karami and says, marry me. <laughs> of course, Tan is like an easily infatuated little kid. <laughs> but it's yeah. like a great, like, you know, parody of like, what's been going on with this entire Karama storyline. It's like Karama, when she, the first person she sees when she wakes up, she has to marry and in this case, Ten wakes up, and the first person he sees is Karama, and he asks her to marry him. So it's funny, <laughs> funny play there. It's it's kind of Kurama is very cute when um, uh, when Ten wakes up, and she just goes, "Where did that come from?" <laughs> Which is usually, you know, what someone would say to her. Yeah, she doesn't take. But Ten I, that I don't know. She's drawn kind of with full lips and like a, a concerned look on her face, mm. which I think is is kind of nice there. Yeah, uh, I just kind of like the art style that they went for. And of course, she's trying to get. She's kind of just ignoring the rules yeah. now. No, she just wants now to that she kind of knows the Mendo. truth. I also like that there's week to week continue here because they make reference to the last chapters happening last week. So yeah, that fits in with the community. The continuity established in the beginning of the chapter where Karama has not eaten for like three days. So I like this mm. cons- this interesting consistency with the passage of time, even though time technically does not pass in the series year to year. But yeah, this is great because um, Ten asks what's going on and goes consummate. Uh, wait, what does consummate mean? <laughs> <laughs> and and just I think Takahashi just loves drawing these expressions on people, mm-hmm. like you know, super angry or super surprised or super shocked. Yeah, uh, you know, with those with those backgrounds that just go Kong or Bam. bang. Yeah. And Ten is, like, saying, no, don't make a baby with a Taramendo. It'll just turn out to be an idiot because those guys are idiots. I'm the only one can make you happy. And mm. it's consummate with me. It's like this. Ten does not clearly know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what it means <laughs> to make a baby. But he's just he's just very infatuated with uh, Karam. It's just like when they went to see that porno film which a uh, sakura like ten was watching it the <laughs> whole time he's like so bored he didn't understand what's going on <laughs> so i mean he still is just a kid yeah. effectively uh and of course ataru and mendo you know start trying to to grab at karuma who just kind of has this brainwave of these two guys are pretty much the same but she also comes to her own conclusion of I like handsome, superficial men. Yeah. Like, that's all she cares about. And then about. just kind of buggers off. That's really all she cares about. <laughs> just the fact that Mendo's attractive. Yeah. He, he, she could care less about the personality at this point. But then, G broadcasts a image of the elder, the eldest elder, the 120 generations ago elder, the first generation, using, like, I guess, a... A projector, basically. A hologram yeah. projector, and yeah. <laughs> he basically shares the story that the reason this whole tradition started, this whole covenant, that the first person you see when you wake up, you marry, is because one day he was walking in the woods, he came across a sleeping crow girl, and he kissed her, and then she woke up. Eventually, they got married. So, this entire tradition was started by an act that, let's face it, was an act of sexual assault 
that uh, <laughs> yes. and it worked out basically for a them, fairy tale. It, no, it, it was <laughs> it was the wrong thing to do. It was very creepy, but yeah. So you know, he created this law in honor of his own personal treasured memory. So he's basically forced everyone mm. to follow along with this in honor of his own relationship with his wife and like everyone forgot over the 120 generations and so they've been poisonously following the tradition that did not need to be there there's no consequences for it at all it's just sentimental for a guy who did a creepy thing and then crumb is like i'm not okay so this this is clearly bullshit this law i'm just gonna have you know relations with just gonna have sex with whoever i want yeah but let's uh, go for it then Puts like a giant uh, container over Mendo. A giant bell yeah. over um Yeah. Over Mendo who is claustrophobic yep. and then she just leaves saying, I don't like pathetic men. Yeah. And now her standards, she is no longer willing to settle. She's going to get everything she wants in a man. Strong, smart, tough, handsome, a gentleman, and you know what? Good for her. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that when she when she turns up later on, the only thing she really wants is actually just handsome. Yeah, she she reverts. Like, she is ultimately a superficial person in of herself. She just likes people with good looks. Yeah, just like pretty much everyone else in her Yeah, answer. I think overall this story arc was a funny commentary, though, on, like, these archaic traditions that force women in particular into these specific roles of trying to, like, having to settle for a mate, which is just, it's like... This entire storyline are just like men trying to control who Karama shacks up with, and ultimately it ends with her finally shedding the shackles of this like archaic patriarchal tradition, and like finally being able to like pursue her own like sexual mm. interests. So I appreciate that. It's like a funny little commentary there, and it it very much is a commentary on um, on a lot of misogynistic behavior in Japan as well. Oh yeah, it's um. Especially, like, it's getting better, but incredibly slowly. And uh, and recently, we're recording this when the um, the head of the Olympic Committee in Japan came out and said, oh, women talk too much. What the fuck? This is an 82-year-old politician who came out and said, women need to know their place, they talk too what much. What the hell? Um, please. Everyone in Japan fired. just please. went, I hate this guy so much, he needs to quit. Yes. And he comes out and goes, I'm sorry, that's not what my comment said. And the IOC came out and said, he apologized, so it's fine. Ah. And 97% of Japanese people want this guy to resign, and he's refusing to resign. Oh my god, that is so maddening. Yeah. Oh, what? It's, it's been very frustrating to watch for the past few days, let me tell you. And But it sparked a conversation in Japan where it's like, Japan is ranked, in terms of equality um, between men and women, 121st in the world, which is pretty bloody low yeah. for a first world country. Yeah, like what? Yeah, I and it's it's maddening to watch, but at least it started this conversation of women are just kind of like going, why do we keep letting this happen? Like, why are these people in power? Yeah, we really hate these types of people. Like this uh, and they, freaking mm. culture of like protecting these. Shitty sexist men in power is so egregious. Like this man, yeah. the whole 
uh, controversy? Was it Tokyo U that was like purposely lowering the test scores of female applicants to the university so to make male scores look better? Yeah, I don't think it was Tokyo U, but it was a it was a very prestigious medical. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was a prestigious medical university, and they were specifically denying uh, applications from women because women. Women quit too early because they want to have kids, and, you know, and retire early and stuff like that. And it's like, and of course, all they did was they bowed their head and apologized, and probably nothing's changed. God damn it! Very, very, very frustrating. Yeah. So the next chapter is uh, it's a summer summer chapter. Message oh, in a bottle. This two part is so good. Yes, yes. Um, they find a bottle floating in the sea. They're obviously on vacation. Mm-hmm. It's the four plus ten because mm-hmm. ten isn't. Isn't always part of the form. And it's um, a, a love letter in the bottle and ten things because he found yep. it. It's for him. Of course, the utter are credulous. Yep, they don't really believe him. They don't even know, hey, it's not even for a girl. Who cares? So ten is convinced, but they go back to their inn. And they ask the innkeeper, like, is there any sights to see here? And there's nothing but the sea. But there's an inlet there. And they the innkeeper's like, hey, don't go to the cockle inlet. And then a bunch of other people are working at this inlet. Like the chefs and other staff come under. They all claim, like, don't go there because there's a monster that's going to eat you there. But they all have different opinions of who the monster is. One person says it's the ghost of a yeah. giant ugly man. Other person says it's a gorgeous woman. Another person says it was a creepy old granny. So they all start arguing. And while they're doing that, the kids just leave. And then later on, Ten is in the bat. Like, all three of the boys are in the bat. And Ten is just, like, singing back the words in a love letter to himself. Like, I love you, I long for you. He's annoying Ataru. But then, suddenly, another love letter bottle pops up and hits Ataru in the back of the head from, like, the the mouth of the fountain in the bat. And then he opens it up and uh, it's a telephone number. That says, call me. And so he gets excited about that and then goes to call. But then Mendo is also, like, incredulous. He doesn't believe, like, it's going to come to anything. So he thinks it's clearly a prank. So he goes to the wedding machine. But then, <laughs> instead of whatever he was going to buy, uh, another leveler in a bottle pops up. He opens it and it says that, you know, I want to spend the night with you. And so, like, he at first is like, oh, this is quite the elaborate kind. But, like, he's taken in enchanted by the opportunity so ataru calls the number of the phone number that was in the love letter and then apparently the person wants to meet them at cockle inlet and so they all start fighting over who this mystery girl really wants to meet because clearly it's all from the same person because the handwriting's the same so Ataru and Mendo begin, like, saying this is a showdown between me and you of who it's going to, like, get to this girl. And Ten is, like, not really taken seriously as part of this, like, love competition. And when he tries to burn them, like, they stick bottles of water in his mouth so he can't let out his flames. Uh, and then the next morning, like, Taru tries to get up the Krakadon to sneak away before the others get up, but uh, Ten and Mendo have cleverly tied a rope, a string, to Ataru's foot, so, like, they are dragged along with him when he tries to leave. 
Charred just notices, of course. Oh, there's already a, a trap waiting yes. for him outside, Robin which Shinobu wakes up, up uh, Lemon Shinobu. <laughs> that rings a bunch of uh, chimes that alerts them that Ataru is escaping. And so, like, Ataru runs away and he wakes up Tan and Mendo because their heads get, like, bashed when they when he's running down the stairs. So he's woken up from that jumble. Uh, and so they all run off to the inlet. And they're, I love how Mendo and Ataru are brushing their teeth while on the way there like there's such a hurry like they, they decide no we gotta brush our teeth on the way before meeting this girl uh, there's, a, there's a there's a great little bit here where Mendo is still asleep being dragged but he's combing his hair yeah like oh my Atari gosh was yes. just, he's combing his hair in his what sleep a it's just a nice little <laughs> just such a, a, a nice little nod there to uh. the, the type of superficial person that Mendo truly mm. is they meet the woman of course and it's a Beautiful lady mm-hmm. with um with shells in her yeah, hair. Yeah, shells in her hair, and her dress. dress is also like shell team, which is so cool. With like these characters mm. who work at this inn, like both her and the the old lady also has like a shell clamshell team dress, which is very interesting and very. It's a very cool hint to their identities too. But yeah, yeah. So they they go to the new inn. Yeah, she's played um, them. You know, like because... all these letters were just like promotional letters for this inn. So they're intoxicated by her, of course. So they all go to the pension caca, which I love the design of this building. Again, it's like this yeah this house enclosed in a clamshell. It looks super super cool. Like it's a great design. Um, they're is an old woman there, like as per the legends, mm. and they on the very last page there is a giant man there as well. Yeah. And it just looks like they're there to eat them. And he's just he's literally grinding an axe. Yeah. He's sharpening an axe, ready ready to do them in, and it's it's ended on a bit of a um bit of a cliffhanger. Yeah, here. yeah. But I'm glad that this storyline continues into the next chapter. We see what happens in Ghastly Gastronomy, which has a great like horror movie esque like kind of uh, title page. It's particularly with like Shinobu reacting to the shadow of the man like approaching on her, but also like the silhouette of the elderly woman like peering at Mendo and Ten too. And Lum is of course looking ready to pounce on Atari with holding hands with the innkeeper girl. <laughs> so this is very much kind of like a horror. Like there's a lot of allusions here to, yeah. to horror films of the time, which is it's really funny. Um, the way they're drawn as these kind of like nasty people who are just ready to eat them, mm-hmm. and like they're arguing about who they're going to eat, and like, the old granny's going to have the handsome one and the baby, and the big guy's going to have the girls. Yeah, and then that leaves the the girl with just Taru, and she's not happy with that because girls are tough and sinewy. She would have rather had the baby mm. or the girl, but of course, like the She's kind of outnumbered by the woman and the man in their interest. And so she has to kind of just go along with what they want. And she gets the scraps, essentially. But I love this joke of, like, the man is, like, licking his blade. And then Ataru comes back and opens the door. And he cuts his... Because the guy was on the other side of the door, like, he cuts his thug on the knife. And so his thumb starts bleeding. Like, they really give these, like, murderous cannibals, like, a run for their their money here. This is just the start of it. So, she's they go in for some dinner, and uh, the, she leaves a note in Ataru's... I want to mention Grace, this great joke at the dinner scene. Like, we're seeing, like, all of the... We're seeing 
the man and the woman like lick their lips watching like their mm. prey eat dinner like the man is watching the girls <laughs> the woman's watching ten and Mento. but when it gets to uh the girl like she's not looking at her lips Ataru is Ataru's looking at her lips looking at her <laughs> she's just kind of creeped out a bit but she, yes she does it's a great visual gag uh, there and none of it's subtle like no, none of these guys are subtle not at all but yeah she gives him the and note in the miso soup to meet her alone later of course, he hides it from Lum. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lum doesn't really feel like anything's wrong nah. because she's not really threatened. She's never really threatened by anything that happens on Earth. Yeah, I mean, there's no danger to her, honestly. Like, she's not creeped no. out by this at all. She's probably dealt with, like, stranger stuff in space anyway than these people. Yeah. So, but Shinobu is on edge. And so they hear some creaking Lum and her uh, near their room. And when their door opens, like, it's just Mendo and Ten looking for Taru, but Shinobu's been so freaked out, she lifted up her entire brain and was about to bash them with it, which is great. But, yeah, mm. they suspect that Taru is going to snuck off to meet with the girls, so, you know, Lum, I love how she, like, is, like, stomping down the stairs so mad <laughs> while Mendo and Ten follow her casually. But while they leave Shinobu alone, like, she's approached by... From the shadows, the man who has prepared a bath for her. Although he he mm. very obviously like says he's prepared a brat, but uh, I guess Shinobu does not find that <laughs> suspicious until she, she goes into there. But yeah, while uh, they go outside looking for Ataru, the granny has uh, intercepts Mendo and she has carrying this water in and it's like saying that she went to town to get them one. She asks him to carry her back. And then while... Mendo is carrying her, you know, on his back. Like, she tries to chomp down into him. And, like, I think Mendo is just thinking that she's trying to be frisky with him. He's just like, hey, don't yeah, get around. Yeah, you're too old like for that. this kind of yeah. behavior. <laughs> but her teeth aren't strong enough to chomp into him. So, yeah, they have to cook him. Mm. Then we get Shinobu and the bat. And it's like, huh, this bat, this water is weird. It's like fish broth. So she gets out. And then she encounters, like, some like a mixture waiting for her to rub into her skin after mating, which is like salt flour and butter. So it's like, it's she hasn't really figured it out yet, but then the guy is pouncing on her and then we cut away from there yeah. just to go to a scene with Ataru, just Ataru. with the girl. And, you know, they get to talking and she laments about being mistreated by the others and then sticking with her with the yuckiest person Atari sympathetic even though he's talking she's talking about him as being the <laughs> gross thing she has to like eat <laughs> but then of course you know love intercepts and shocks both her and Ataro and drags him away and then she the girl is just crying oh my dinner my dinner <laughs> but then we cut back to I like him. the fact that uh, we, we cut back to what's happened to Shinobu, yeah. who's just packing her bags. Yeah, yeah. She's ready to go, and she reckons that this guy's just a giant pervert. Uh-huh. She beat the crap out of him and just put him in oh, the broth. so good. <laughs> so I love, love and Shinobu really just shock and beat the crap out of these spirits, and I just absolutely love that mm. so much. Like, Ataru and Mendo do nothing. It's really all Love and Shinobu who beat these guys. I mean, I feel so bad for Shinobu yeah. that she thought she was almost, like, assaulted. And really, she was almost murdered. But, yeah, I mean, they're yeah. super <laughs> capable. Like, this was a good, like, showing of her, like, strength. That she could beat up, like, this this creepy str- and, like, hulking evil yeah, spirit. Yeah, it kind of, kind of means that they, they were never really in any danger. No. Because, like, as, as like, 
you know, Shinobu is just like, oh, I'm a, I'm a helpless little girl. And she picks up a bookcase. Yeah. Or just basically an entire bed and beats the crap out of these yeah. people. Lama electrocutes the old lady with the axe. Yeah. And then you've got the, the, the young woman is just sitting on a, on a shell. Yeah, no, it's just run, the young woman just runs out after seeing, like, her compatriots, like, beaten and shocked. And, yeah, Shinobu and Lama are, like, <laughs> on top of them, stomping them. And Ted is also preparing to burn them, too. So, like, it's a triple threat. <laughs> but, yeah, so she, she runs off and she gets on her, like, shell clam and is, like, going to go back off into the sea. And even though she was trying to eat them, they are mesmerized, like, by the beauty of her, like, riding off into the shell into the sunset. Yeah. But then that image of beauty is very quickly uh, ruined by the the man and the woman, <laughs> old woman, also doing the same, also apologizing and trying to go off of the shell. <laughs> and, like, they're just like, you know, we're fed up, just go, just go. This is awkward. Just get out of here. <laughs> the fact that they apologize is funny as well. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, we're sorry. We're sorry as well. We're leaving. Yeah. I, uh, we've got chapter 17, yeah. Baseball Shenanigans. Return of um, the Tobimaro can... after a couple lines too. I think also since volume three. Hmm. And you've got uh, Ryoko there at the back yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in an obvious loving pose. Uh, and every time we've seen Ryoko, we just know that she's bored, mm-hmm. and she just is waiting for her next oh, victim, yeah. which I think we know who's going to yeah, be. Yeah, this chapter does establish that Ryoko has had a long history of tormenting Tan for pleasure, for just to get a kick. It's like, literally leaving him stranded on top of high places, or drowning him, and laughing at him when he calls <laughs> for help. But... The reason Tobimaro has come to Tomobiki is to challenge Mendo, of course. And I love that he tries to climb over the fence that... Yeah, it's interesting. Hanawa also makes a cameo here after a bit. But Hanawa and Antenmark are like guarding uh, this fence. And mm. then Tobimaro just brings his ladder to climb over it. But like, of course, when he gets to the midway point, the balance shifts. And so he falls flat on his face. So that's funny. Uh, but what's interesting about this baseball game is that, you know, uh, Taru and Kosuke are competing against Mendo. But Ataru's team, they want to, you know, lose. Like, they want to basically throw the game because they bet against themselves. <laughs> and they bet 10 pool passes if they lose the game. So they're, they're trying to intentionally lose. But of course... I, I, I do like that Kosuke and Otaru are basically skiing yeah, together yeah. yet again. And they've just got the exact same expression on their face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, of course, like, they are foiled in their attempts to be foiled because not only is Mendo a bad player, but also eventually they recruit in their team and Ryoko interferes and all that. But, yeah, basically... Mm. Like, Don is just constantly made a fool of in this chapter. Like, he tries to act cool by saying, once I get a ball in my hands, I don't let it go. But then immediately it falls out of his hands. <laughs> and then, like, <laughs> he just, the, he just a, flicks it away Ataru kicks his ladder that he used to climb up into the tree down and leaves him stranded there. And then he tries to play cool by, like, resting in the tree. But then he, like, just... He notices the ladder, he, he feels uneasy, and he tries to climb down. This <laughs> all is, that falls down is his sandal. And uh, then, of course, Ryoko comes, and then he acts a little rude to her, so in turn, like, she just leaves his ladder, just leaves him behind, stuck in the tree as he weeps. Like, Mm. while she's laughing it up, like, enjoying his torment. And again, like, we get a flashback that shows that this has been a long history 
of Ryoko tormenting Tobimaru and teasing him. And the thing is, that I think that she, in her own twisted way, she does like him. I think as like a a patsy, but she likes him because she likes tormenting him. Yeah, and that is just her her own twisted way of you know being in the Mendo family of showing affection, I suppose. And you know she's bored and having fun and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think there's just there's a little bit of underlying like she's. Like, he is her favourite person to torment? Yes, I think that for sure. I do not sense any romantic interest in her to him, but I no, do think that... No, it's not romantic, that, but it, yeah. It, it... Yeah. I do think that she likes having him around because he is very amusing, because he is often very easy to make a fool of. Hmm. But anyway, the, Toby Maru is recruited into Ataru's team in this baseball game. Because, like, Mendo wants to compete against Tobimaru because uh, if Tobimaru loses, then, you know, he'll back off uh, Ryoko. Because even though he also has a bad relationship with his sister, he also hates pretty much all the men that his sister expresses interest in him. Which she knows, which is why she yeah. is interested in these men, because it upsets her brother. Well, she gets a twofer here, doesn't she? Yeah, she yeah. She's tormenting her brother and she's tormenting her, you know, her greatest... Tormentee, yes, effectively. Yes, but yes. Yeah, so Ataru is very receptive to Ton joining their team because he's bad at sports. Like he throws a bat at Ton <laughs> and he does not catch it. So they think it's going to be no. uh, easy losing for them with Ton on their team. But of course, Ryoko's Kuroko interfere and they like they put the ball baseball on a string to make it very easy for like Ton to hit it. And then, like, the Kuroko just runs with the ball. Like, he doesn't even hit the ball off whatever stick it is. He just hits the ball, and then the Kuroko runs. And so, Tomar is running the bases, and Ataru and Kosuke, like, are trying to run after him to stop him so that they don't lose their, you know, bet. And this tips, like, all the other students off that they are trying to throw the game, and so they demand a refund. But basically, it's a mad dash between Ataru and Tobimaru to the home plate, but... As they approach it, it turns out Ryoko dug a ditch underneath it. And so she, of course. she <laughs> claps and jumps for joy, having got two people to fall into her trap. It's it's very pantomime. I do love that the um the, the Koroko kind of are, are obviously just always willing participants in all of this. <laughs> and it's not even like they're doing stuff in the background like some kind of conspiracy. It's all forefront. And it's all just such a big show, which is exactly what um, Ryoko wants. Mm-hmm. So we're on to chapter 18, a Spicy Camping Calamity. Yeah. But this one's a great one. I do love the cover because Lum is cooking, yeah. obviously with Tabasco. And Atari is shrinking Atari's away because he knows that mm. Lum's cooking is also very spicy. Something that... Uh, Mendo, Kosuke, and some random third guy, because there aren't a lot of uh, male-named students at Tobiki. No. They don't know, so they are excited at the prospect of eating Lum's food, while Ataru is pretty much okay with not, and just eating chips. But, like, they eat it, and they realize, oh, it's, uh, it's has a usual spell. Oh, it's it's like wasabi. And then they eat it, and then they're, it lives immediately in flame. They start tearing up. They try to lie to Lum and say it's the sunset, and they just admire its beauty. But, like, they realize, tearing up later, that, oh, we can't keep eating Lum's spicy food. 
<laughs> they try to find emergency rations eat instead, but they're all gone. A rabbit has stolen them. We're all eaten by the rabbit. Yeah, by, they can yeah. tell by the trap. And it's a talking rabbit, because of course of it is. Of course it is. They go out hunting for it. I mean, they go out foraging for food, but then they encounter the rabbit in that process, and Hataru throws Mendo. He literally just throws Mendo at the rabbit to knock it out of the guy <laughs> and crush it underneath. Uh, and so... Like, Ataro does not care that it's a talking rabbit. Like, Mendo is, like, taking a bang. He's like, I don't want to eat a talking rabbit. Ataro's like, who cares? It won't make any difference in our stomachs. Like, he's very, very motivated by hunger there. <laughs> very pragmatic. Yeah, but of course, Mendo and the others change their tune, too, when they figure out that the rabbit was the one who stole all their food. Yeah, yeah, it's, they all have a, they, I love the fact that they all have a laugh together, like, I ate all their food, they all go, ha ha ha, and then the next <laughs> panel is just literally them cooking uh, the rabbit. Great team in these items, and about to roast the <laughs> rabbit, but he promises to show them uh, the village where there's other food they can eat instead, so they tie him in a rope and have him leave him there, but there are a bunch of traps meant for the rabbit, like a pitfall mm. trap that has, like, a pointed bamboo underneath in the pit, uh, there's a falling rocks trap, there's a, of course, a rabbit trap with a, you know, rope uh, and uh, that pulls one up into the tree and whatnot. Uh, then they're like, a, there's a trap that it has like flying rakes and uh, pitchforks thrown at them. And then eventually the villagers just come chasing after them and like stomp them all underneath them. They don't even notice that the people that are trying to chase, they've already trampled over. But of course, Ataru and Co. are mad at the rabbit, but he promises to show them somewhere else that there's food. And so they dig, they get away from the villages, they dig, they dig, they finally dig up, and Lum's prepared breakfast! And Yay! it's just a funny joke because, like, they're at the point where they're saying, oh, we're gonna, we'll eat anything. And the yeah. rabbit's like, oh, okay. And so, yeah, they're back where they started. Lum has made breakfast. They they worked all night to try and find better food, but now they, they still have to eat those spicy cooking. I do love this. I, I just love there's this, you just occasionally see a little bit about Lum's people. Mm. From, you know, just people from, well, alien from Oniboshi. Obviously, like they find Earth food very, very bland. Yeah. But she doesn't like garlic, but she does really like, spicy food because it's kind of the only thing that they can taste yeah so they mix it in with absolutely everything and it's she's very blissfully unaware mm-hmm. um and whenever she cooks something like it's never really specifically like spelled out to her throughout the entire series that you like things that are way too hot for us to eat yeah i mean it's an interesting uh, and funny culture shock joke that i think is you no, know, a little relatable because you know I am Indian. Like Indian cuisine is is often very spicy and bitter. So when I've had you know mm. non-Indian friends like try some Indian food, like on the you know extreme end of spiciness, they also have like this reaction of like, "Ooh, this is this is a little much." Oh my gosh! So I, I like this kind of joke. Like obviously it's exaggerated here on how spicy the food is, but there is some truth yeah, to it. Like yeah. different the fact that their lips grow like really big and red is kind of yeah. fun. Oh god, I love spicy food so mm. much. One of the great things about being in Australia is that we're very multicultural. Mm. So you know, I had lots of friends from different cultures growing up. And um we had an Indian family who lived very close to us who just cooked the most wonderful curries. Ooh. But the thing is after eating curries, I'm almost, I'm 40 this year, by the way. I turned 40 in a couple of months. Nice. After 40 years of pretty much nonstop curry, I've kind of killed my taste buds. 
So it's kind of difficult to go back. Someone goes, oh, you should try this curry. Like um, when I was in Japan, I love Japanese curry, but I usually have to have it on the spicy end. Otherwise, I just, I can't get that flavor profile properly. And I've, I think I've kind of ruined my taste buds now. <laughs> so, and the, the problem is that so is my wife because she really loves spicy food. But now that I'm almost 40 years old, uh, my digestive system can no longer handle like the spiciest thing in the restaurant. <laughs> yeah. It does depend on the food, too. If something is too spicy, yeah, it can upset your stomach. Yeah, and, and the thing is, like, I I'll, I'll, I used to go into a restaurant and order, like, the hottest vindaloo that oh. they had. And there's still something in me that really wants to do that, but I go, no, you can't, you idiot, stop that right now. You know you're going you're gonna to pay for it in, like, two hours. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Oh, but I, I really want a curry now, actually. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's about lunchtime here. <laughs> yeah, and it's about dinner time uh, where I'm at too. So I mean, I am having like a tandoori chicken tonight. So yeah, this is making me hungry. Mm, and this next chapter is not going to help because it's uh, called Paranormal Peachy <laughs> Parable, which is a, it's a, that's a some fun alliterative uh, naming there. That also yeah, I think that's um they have fun with the titles. Yeah. They don't often have anything to do with the actual title. Um, yeah. One of the things that kind of bugs me about this is that Cherry's head is sticking out of the peach down the bottom. Yeah, I mean, it's just to indicate that Cherry's going to be in this chapter. Obviously, he is... Yeah, it kind of ruins the surprise of yeah. him just popping up. And now they're obviously still on a camping trip. Right. It's like a continuation of the uh, and they're obviously chapter. Yeah. It's effectively a, a continuation, but not exactly a part two. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a direct part two, but it's clearly in line with the continuity of the previous chapter. Like, when this adapts into the anime, these chapters were in the same episode. But, uh, yeah, like, <laughs> so they're fishing because they want to, you know, find utter food that Lum is not going to cook for them. <laughs> but, yeah, Ten has overheard them, like, bad-mouthing Lum's cooking, and he was going to squeal on them, but Ataru catches him with the fishing hook and uses him as bait to try and catch food. <laughs> but instead, he's basically rescued, or rather, the scene is interrupted by a peach floating down the river. And this is this is obviously an allusion to Momotaro, yes, yes. The, um, the Japanese legend slash fairy tale slash story. Mm. Uh, and of course, they they break open the peach to find Jerry. Jerry. <laughs> yeah, they all <laughs> take swings at him, but he definitely dodges. But he explains that he was doing training up the river, and then he landed out in a peach paradise, and it was full of beautiful flowers and lots of fruit and nymphs, and that entices the gang to go search out this place. And Lum suspects they're in it for the nymphs, but Ataru says that they're in it for the fruit, and I imagine it's, it's a little bit of both. I think they're also still hungry. It's, it's probably both, yeah. but, you know, as soon as he heard they were beautiful women, he's all Yeah, in. and I love that... Uh, I do love Lum's reaction... Mm -hmm. Because everyone else is like, oh my god, Cherry, and they all go, bam, and they all fall over. But Lum is just has just this incredulous look yeah. on her face. Like, every time Cherry shows up, she's just like going, oh god, this guy again. Yeah, she's not as taken aback, but she is a little annoyed by it. She, she just, yeah, it's she, she's always annoyed by mm. Cherry rather than, like, finding him, like, yeah. rather than being shocked or anything. I mean, every like character is... In this series. But yeah, I love how Cherry is trying to boast that because he is a monk, it's because of his spiritual like awareness that allowed him to find Peach Paradise. When it's so easy to find it because there are signs there. There are different entrances, <laughs> one for the fruit course, one for the nymph course. And Atari tries to 
trick everyone so that he can go to the nymph course alone. Like he says, oh, there are five ape men, look. And they're actually interested. They're like, oh, where are they? Where are they? And that gives it our chance to slip away to the <laughs> to the cave route. But it turns out both routes, they both lead to the same place. So it's lead pretty to the same place. place. Yeah. Uh, and there's this, yeah, there's Peach Paradise, you would have the sign. It says, this is indeed Peach Paradise to, to convince people that they're really there. I like um, Cherry is basically spat out by no ugly people yes, swallowed up by a peach. there's a sign that's like that ugly people no entry. And so a peach just like gobbles him up and it falls in the river to take him back <laughs> down to the mortal realm. Uh, then they encounter a, a woman being carried off on this platform by some monks in the Peach Paradise. And Taro immediately hits on her. And they basically get uh, a lowdown on the situation that an evil beach is going to destroy them unless they offer up this monk's daughter as a sacrifice. And so their solution is like, oh, we're just gonna take the girl and leave the place. And her dad is like, hey, no, no. And uh, we want you to defeat the evil peach. And Atara's like, well, how the hell do we do that? And this guy basically gives soul spiel about, hey, there's a sacred sword, the Mortar Maru. Again, playing back into the Momotar legend illusions here. Like, it's a legendary sword in mm. the ground at the foot of a peach tree. And they have to overcome these obstacles to go and retrieve it. And so they decide to do it for this maiden. But they're giving, like, these racing numbers that they'll have to wear and then everyone so there's a there's a, a little bit of cultural significance here um in the 80s uh, in a lot of places all over the world there were shows on television that were basically giant obstacle courses yeah um the, the most famous of this was takeshi's challenge mm. or what it was actually called takeshi no shoshinjo or something like that and um basically no, it was Takeshi's Castle. I'm talking. I'm thinking about the game. <laughs> but Takeshi was like a, a famous person in Japan at the time, and he hosted like this. It was basically like a ninja warrior, or uh, like a, an obstacle courses that people run through, and they fall into pits, or they have to like you know go dodge things, or run on a giant ball, or, or you know and some of it was very randomized. In Australia, we had our own take on that called "It's a Knockout." Mm. Um, that was basically held in a stadium and there were like big mud pits and, uh, you know, you had to swing across things in a rope. And this is kind of very much a style at the time, illusion yeah. to those sorts of shows. Obstacle course intros were big. Especially in, in Japan, these things were really popular. As a kid, I think my favorite of these types of game shows, uh, they were very kid-oriented. They, Nickelodeon had a lot of these. My favorite of them was Legends of oh, the Hidden Temple. Oh, like Double Dare? Yeah, like Double Dare. Hmm. But I think more akin to these kind of like crazy obstacle course kind of challenges would be like something like Legends of the Hidden Temple, which is one of my personal favorites yeah. as a kid. I've seen yeah. that referenced on Twitter a few times, but yeah, it was back in the eighties. These were like adults would train for these to go on these shows, <laughs> <laughs> and then they just force these untrained kids to go on them for entertainment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh it's, gosh, it's it's kind of funny the way this kind of happens. It was like a show for adults, and then adults got over it, so they went, "Oh, we can market this towards kids," and then we make the kids go yeah. through. Yeah, one thing I want to note actually about these monks' designs, though, is that uh, this is a great joke. Is that when they're first introducing, when like the father of this girl is introducing himself, like it's this pitch black panel where we're just seeing his eyes, and then we see in the next panel like him from the side where we realize, oh. 
Like, this guy is just super hairy. Like, hair, black hair is just all encompassing his body. So that's just how he looks. I, mm. it, it's interesting, these designs. Like, hair is just completely covering their bodies. Like, they're ju- just big, bushy mustaches. It's, just, it's very interesting. And it turns out that they're all just gambling. Yes. Effectively, yes. They, were just, they were just betting on people because they, they're, they're bored in their immortality. Yeah, they're in, just in forcing them to go on this obstacle course uh, to entertain themselves with betting, like, who will come in. And, of course, Atari is the one who... Who wins? So, congrats on the guy who bet on Ataru. Not always the the best. And of bet, course, Ataru but... is always number four. Yes, he's yes. always the unlucky right. number four. <laughs> oh, that's such a good joke there too. Okay, and next we've got uh, we're up to our last two chapters. The um... perfidy of the Sakura triplets. I think this is a really great uh, color cover illustration too. What with all the sand Sakura's it hair, is. like connecting with each other and forming like a ocean that we see Ted and Ataru like swimming through. Like this is a really good composition. I like it a lot. It looks really good. I'd love to see the originals for a lot of these. Yeah. Also, perfidy, perfidi, I actually don't know that word. Yeah. That is not an actual word that I'm familiar with. And I used to be an English teacher. So I don't know. That strikes me as a little weird. Yeah, perfidy just means like deceitfulness and trustworthiness. So, you know, they could have they could have yeah. used duplicity or deceit, but uh, they they went for perfidy. It's just that sometimes you just come across words that just aren't used in your yeah. culture. And this is just not a word that we use in Australian culture, interestingly. Yeah. Because I was looking at that going, is this perfidy? Is it perfidy? Mm. But yeah, it's basically no, it's they're interesting. all on the beach, like Sakura just was there gonna do it there on her own but then she just encountered all the kids there all our usual crew of Sunoku Mindo Ataru and Lum and Cherry's there too but he's been buried in the sand with his head sticking out and he doesn't play much with this chapter but it's a it's a fun little detail he's in this first and last it's page. nice that Sakura is is here with Cherry I think because they're you know they're kind of our part and parcel a lot of the time yeah I bet she didn't want to come with Cherry Cherry just tagged along or ended mm. up being there too luckily for her he does not do much in this chapter. He's like asleep through the entire thing. He's literally just his first and last page. Mm. But yeah, I mean, she has Shinobu rub like lotion on her back. And it's clear that she's there because she's planning to meet up with Tsubame, as we later see in the chapter. But she is being coy about that. Meanwhile, Ataru is like bullying Ten because Ten is building a sandcastle. And then Ataru, like, pokes a hole in this levee that Ten built to keep the water out. And he also builds, like, <laughs> a path for the water to come through to, you know, flood the castle. So the water does yeah. do that when the tide comes in, and it destroys Ten's castle. So he uses this sand... This, he uses this core to build it. When he builds another castle, he puts this core inside it, and it's unbreakable no matter what Ataru does. It doesn't mm. get washed away by the river. It doesn't get washed away when Ataru just tries to, like, destroy it while playing pretend with, like, a toy monster. Yeah, I do like that. Oh, look, a monster. Tonk, mm. tonk. <laughs> and so this gives Ataru... It's a clever little gimmick here. So they wait for Shinobu... Uh, they, no, they wait for uh, Sakura to fall asleep and then Shinobu to leave to get cola and then Ataru convinces Lum to go with her and says that he won't be able to do anything with Sakura because he tries to. He tries to pull Sakura's broth right from under her, but instinctually Sakura punches him <laughs> dab in the face and that's enough to convince Lum that there's nothing to worry about because Sakura won't let anything get past her. 
and Mando comes. I like how they say that's that's some Miko yeah. power, and it's 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 not a, it's not Miko power. It's well, just like she's aware of it's these. It's a certain like, sense of spiritual bands, awareness, uh, awareness of her surroundings that she can react like this in her sleep. But yeah, like Ataru goes to work building a replica of Sakura, and then he's going to use the sand core to bring it to life. And apparently, one of the functions yeah. of this core is that it can animate these bodies and give them like personalities i guess well less per yeah less personality and just kind well, of they can like talk. Kind of more just they like, can like interact yeah. <laughs> at the very least they're, they're a little robotic but yeah they basically like this convinces mendo and ten to as well to build their own sansacras uh so they do that they put the cores inside and they each go off on their own respective dates with their own respective sansakra but while uh Shinobu and Lum were out getting cold, they encounter Shibame, and that's when they realize what's up with, you know, the fact they were meeting there on the beach to go on a date, and Shibame's thinking to himself, oh, maybe it's time to set the date for a wedding. But then he sees, you know, Atari <laughs> with Sakura, or one of the Sand Sakuras. I like how he, like, pushes Lum and Shinobu's faces down into the ground. It's like, he doesn't want them to be noticed, but it's like, why mm. would you do that without warning? And then he like takes an umbrella from a guy and he like uses it to like hide them while they walk behind them, even though they're like trudging up like sand in front of the umbrella. And even though it's like a real eyesore, like everyone on the beach is like paying attention to it. They're really drawing attention to himself, but Ataru is just blissfully unsuspectful of this. But yeah. They, they spy on Atari, and then they encounter Mendo and his own son, Sakura, and that enrages Shinobu, so Shinobu throws a rock on Mendo, bashes him with a rock on his head. <laughs> she's awfully violent. She's really discourages Tsubame, and she, yeah. he thinks that she wants to... I gotta say, like, Tsubame, like, he's just got a bit of a, a gaudy look about yeah, him in this chapter. Yeah, honestly. Like, a lot of his facial expressions are, are just very reminiscent of, of Godai from Mezonikoku. Yeah, honestly, and Sakura herself, you know, there's there are times where she does resemble mm-hmm, Kyoko. Yeah. I think maybe there are some crossed wires here, because obviously Koku Takashi was serializing this at the same time by this point, so kind of interesting there. Jeez, that sounds beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Samami's very discouraged, like thinking Sakura wants to break up with him. And of course, Slim and Shinobu mm. are mad at their respective love interests for going on dates with Sakura. I also love the detail that when Sakura, I mean, when uh, Lum is shocking Ataru and the same Sakura, like, Ataru reacts with the sand Sakura doesn't, because obviously it's made of, you know, sand, and sand doesn't conduct electricity, so it wouldn't be affected. Mm. But yeah, Sabani encounters the real Sakura waking up from her nap, and she is confused by him saying that, oh, you want to break up with me, and she doesn't know what he's talking about, but yeah, then everyone, like, all congregates, and they realize what's going on, it's that they all made sand Sakuras. Sayami is a little slow in the uptake, though, so he's, like, pulling <laughs> on the sand Sakura to the real Sakuras, like, chagrin. But, yeah, eventually they disable the sand dolls, and they're all pulling the real Sakuras. It's just one big mess. <laughs> and it's cherry. Tsubama and Sakura's relationship seems, seems like the most adult. Like, from the outside yeah. looking in, it seems like they're the mo- they're the ones who actually have it together. They have a proper relationship. They go out on dates and stuff, and they're, think- you know, they're engaged and thinking about a date to get married. 
Uh, but it turns out that he's still an idiot. Yeah, they're both insecure in their own ways about their partner cheating on him. Like, yeah. so the real Sakura is, like, reacting with tears at Sabame pulling on the <laughs> arm of a Santa Sakura. Like, it's she knows that these are fake, and he's, like, just easily gullible, but she's, she's taking this very personally. Okay, so the um, the last episode, sorry, last chapter is uh, Dolphin Dating and Beach Babe Patrol. Oh, there's two more after this. Uh, which? There's this one and one oh, more after this. Is there another this. one, is there? Yeah. But uh, this is interesting. What? So this opening page, this cover page, oh, it's showing God. Ataru draw hmm. graffiti on the sign of Lum and the humanoid version of the dolphin. You Can you guess hmm. at what he is writing? Uh, it's, it doesn't seem to be anything. Ah, okay. It's just it's just a circle, basically. He's just trying to paint over yeah. it by the look of it. That's not anything that I recognize as Japanese characters. I think he's trying. Yeah, I think he's, he's just, probably just trying to deface the, the dolphin side. Yeah. Jealous, but yeah, I mean, this chapter starts with Ataru like intercepting a game of women playing volleyball. Like he returns their ball and invites himself to join them, and they're open to it because they don't suspect anything. And then, like Lum is mad at him, and she yells out, "Like, do you do you care if I go swimming with another man?" Because Mendo asks her to swim with him, and Atara's like, "Yeah, sure." He's like just enjoying the game, so like she shocks him, and in the ocean, in the of the beach, like the. A dolphin is flying them, envious of how much fun they're having, and he tries, he bumps into some girls swimming, and he, like, tries to hit on them, like, giving them her card, uh, offering to buy them yeah. cola, but they just run away from him, because they, he creeps them out. But then he encounters <laughs> Lum. It's, it's a very Takahashi drawing of a dolphin, yeah. like, massive, massive eye with a tiny dot pupil, which she likes to do with a lot of her, like, comical Big animals. Big nose, too. But, uh, mm. which is also plays humorously into the first humanoid uh, design of the dolphin. Uh, but yeah, so he counters Lum, and he makes friends with her, because she doesn't find him creepy, because she's used to all sorts of different creatures, he's not weird to her. Yeah, I mean, she, the, the dolphin does kind of look like an alien yeah. here, and if you've seen, like, the kind of creatures that Lum went to school with, she doesn't find this kind of stuff out of place or creepy at all. Talking dolphin, like, sure, whatever. Yeah, a lot of them are animals. And then she, what's great is that she turns him into a guy that looks something a little bit like Genma uh, from Ronma Hart. Water fatter Genma, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he has, like, again, that same kind of bulbous nose, like the dolphin. Or had originally, mm. so it's a, it's very much like a failed transformation. It's kind of like the failed fusions in DBZ before they get it right. Uh, but yeah, so like Lum wants to use the dolphin to make Ataru jealous by having him transform into a handsome man and going on a date with him, pretend date to mm. again to make Ataru jealous and attract his attention away from other women and onto her. But Atari is having a great time, like just hanging out with these girls. It's like they don't seem to mind yeah, and hanging not, out with him. They're not hating him. They're yeah, pretty I mean, receptive. Them cola, like it's, it seems like they're chilling mm. pretty nicely there. But yeah, like he notices Lum with the handsome humanoid version of the dolphin, tanned man, yeah, very tall and tan. <laughs> yeah, he attracts a lot, a lot of uh, attention on a lot of ladies on the beach. And Mendo's mad at Ataru. <laughs> Because, like, 
you know, this is your fault that Lon has has, has fallen to hands of another handsome man, even though he, Mento himself, is handsome, and he like obscures his own vision with te- his own tears and flashes over a watermelon, which mm. impresses a bunch of other ladies, and that quickly gets him off. Uh, get, that quickly gets Lon off his mind because then he just like goes to impressing all these other ladies by offering them watermelon slices. Uh, but yeah. And the dolphin is very happy of all the attention that he's receiving from all these uh, girls, and his eye. But when the uh, dolphin is distracted or his attention breaks, like his eyes revert to how they were, like these big, like shades with small pupils. So Lum tells him, "Hey, mm. um, be mindful to not break your transformation." And so basically, Ataru, like uh, the dolphin, does successfully like flirted with a few women at first and Ataru was like spying on him like flirting offering his car to other girls and is getting mad and along is also spying on him spying on the dolphin very humorously he throws a <laughs> frisbee uh, at the dolphin and that makes him his eyes pop out and so then Lum tramples over Ataru to just get the, the dolphin out of the way to remind him to put his eyes back to normal and so Ataru disguises himself under a like life a raft and then like basically uh gropes a woman to make it seem like a dolphin did so that she'll slap the dolphin and basically goes mm. through a bunch of shenanigans like to put the dolphin situations where he'll be beat up like he trips him then right after so he falls on top of a woman who slaps him and of course by the end of the chapter he comes to the realization that he doesn't really want to be a beautiful man, handsome, beautiful man. He wants to be a beautiful human girl. Uh, yeah. So he changes genders, becomes a girl, and of course, Ataru's jealousy immediately just turns to lust. Yeah, that's, that's a great punchline. I like how his realization is like boys have it so awful, wretched existence because they're always getting slapped and punched, and they have to treat girls mm. instead of getting the ice cream themselves. So it's like, I like how the straw that breaks the camel's back here is that Mendo offers Lum an ice cream and not him. And then says that, hey, mm. if you're a man, you have to treat the ladies. I like that just that that idea that he has to be selfless is the straw that breaks the camel's back there. Like, this dolphin is not a great person. But <laughs> I think that... And of course... At the end of the chapter, Ataru does, you know, he does actually say, get your hands off oh, my woman. Oh, that makes him so happy. I love her expression there. It does. And she's just got this look of glee on her face. And of course, she's already changed. Yeah. Into, the dolphin's already changed into a woman. And Ataru is just, oh, Yeah, baby. I love the comedic timing. So, battles. But yeah, I, I do stand this trans dolphin. This trans human transgender dolphin. Yeah, yeah. It's... I don't know, there's just something really cool yeah. about it. Just the, the way it's played out, and the way it's just... The way it's set up, and the way it finishes. It just how quickly Ataru's attitude changes is his brilliant comedic timing as yeah. well. So we're up... Okay, now this is yes, the last chapter. ending off this trilogy of beach chapters. Forgive my eyesight. Yes. <laughs> Keep our beaches clean. And this cover page is interesting because it shows off these new characters we'll introduce in this chapter. We don't really know what they're doing, but they are lamenting the beach is covered in trash, which is a good setup for their goal as the chapter develops. I like how this uh, guy... Yeah, there's a bit of environmental awareness here, which yeah. is nice. It's um, interesting, like, obviously this is a Depaya uh, fish alien underneath, like, this cloak and um, sunflower hat, but it's to me it's like... 
it kind of reminds me of Tetsuro, his design from uh, Galaxy Express 39. When he yes, says, I, that is definitely, yeah. there's definitely a reference there, I, I mm. think. There's definitely something there, especially hanging around with a beautiful woman as well. Mm. And uh, 999 would have come out before Urusei. Yeah, well. and that was uh, early, se- mid-70s at the least, I think. Mid-70s, yeah. I think. Early to mid-70s, yeah. They were so contemporaries. It's a, still very, very popular and well-known in Japan, even if you haven't read the manga or seen the anime, everyone knows Galaxy Express 999. For sure. So there's a swim team here. They're all practicing, of course. Ataru and Mendo want to go have a good perv. But then... What's great about this is that Mendo is just kind of going along with Ataru's shenanigans. Like, he's just just a willing participant now. He just knows that there are... You know, there's fun to be had at ogling these women, and he just goes, I'll go along with it, and as soon as the plan fails, it's all Ataru's (laughs) fault. But Lum and Shinobu here just both look at Mendo and Ataru with the same facial expression, which I see is just really mm-hmm. clever. Like, Mendo is so much more like Ataru in this in this uh, chapter, I think. Like, he's just kind of less violent and more kind of almost like a sidekick yeah. to Ataru and his shenanigans, which is a little bit different than what we've seen recently. Yeah, less airs of pretentiousness or that he's better than Ataru. He really is just like his mm. uh, co-conspirator here. But well, so are Lum and Shinobu because they both scheme to rub some interesting sunscreen on their backs so that they'll sink like a stone if they try and swim in the ocean so they can't go and perv on the swim team. Ten, they don't do it on Ten because Ten will just float up anyway. And that's how Ataru and Mendo are able to get themselves back afloat too, is that they they use Ten to pull them up out of the water, but they're still flailing around until the new characters we meet who are selling like these floaties are really just giving them away. They give them some floaties for them to swim in. They have their own scheme for why, and they don't charge them, but there's a different price they'll be paying anyway. But uh, yeah, so they go off after the swim team in these floaties, but the swim team swims away from them, and they're confused. Why? Until they realize that Lum has stuck a no-swimming-zone flyer on the back of Atarva's floaty. So they pull that off and <laughs> get the swim team to not swim away from them. And I like how like Ataru is like, Perfectly comfortable admitting that, hey, we can't swim. But Mendo is trying to trying to put on air. So I'm like, no, no, I'm actually an excellent singer. I'm very good. Until until mm. the teacher offers to have them join the class. In which case, Mendo completely backs off on his posture and says, right, I'm a terrible swimmer. Like, I'd love to join this. <laughs> great. But Lum is, of course, messing with that plan by using like this uh, robotic shark fin to scare the swimmers away, and they go chasing after them. We see that these uh, rental floaty characters are watching from a distance. Like the mermaid girl is kind of kind of sad because it's supposed to be their job to do what Ataru and Mendo are currently doing. But you know, they the bio alien is like whispering in their ear, like, "Yeah, you know, I can understand wanting to slag off too." But they eventually yeah. just use ten to burn up the shark robot, 
But the other, the women still swim away because trailing behind Ataru and Mendo is a bunch of trash because these floaties are all, are used for cleaning garbage. They basically have some power to collect garbage. And so the mermaid and Mm. the pie alien, they collect all the garbage and they go back off under the sea. This is where we get the reveal that the girl was a mermaid, but, and that the guy under the cloak wasn't a pie alien. Which is a great reveal. Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a duppier, yeah. and I do I do love the I do love the reveal that he's a duppier as well because you don't they, they don't always have such a prominent place in the story. They're just very much kind of like a where's Wally sort of or where's Waldo. You kind of just spot him randomly in the background of stories, but you know he's kind of a a more prominent role due to the unveil here, yeah. which I kind of like. And that brings us to the end of Volume Seven. And I guess just to comment briefly on the data files, we got one on Ataru, which was very fitting because it was for, you know, volume 13 of these releases originally in Japan. So 13, unlucky number, Mm. uh, spotlight on Ataru and his unluckiness, just perfect synergy uh, there, very appropriate. And it's basically, that data file is basically just running down, hey, Atari's very unlucky, like, how does he deal with his unluckiness? It basically goes over his resourcefulness, how he, like, puts off his unluckiness on it, or he's dragging other people around with him. But he also is very adaptable and very <laughs> willing to go along. It makes a good point of, hey, it's because of Atari's unluckiness he met mom, so it's not always such a bad thing. And then the data file for... Yeah, he kind of plays his unluckiness to his own favor. Yeah, he uses it to his advantage. And then the data file for volume 14, is a fashion spotlight alums different outfits and it does really go to show that even though Lum is very famous for her iconic bikini look, like she does have a lot of really cool outfits in the series and it's nice to have a spotlight on her sense of fashion and how she has like different fashions for different occasions, like casual wear, date wear, and formal wear. Like I like that. And there is there is one here where she's dressed like Madonna. Yeah. <laughs> I mean well. Takashi Probably definitely took like some influences from like some real fashion styles. Of, oh, you would have had to. Like, a lot of this screams eighties, oh, especially yeah. early to mid eighties oh, fashion. Yeah. And then for count columns, we had one for ten and all the times he cried, which was twenty five times throughout the series, and five because of Taru, five because of being rejected by love interests uh, among other <laughs> various occasions. And then there's a count column for all the times Mento reads books, which points out very humorously that in his first appearances when Mento was shown reading, he's wearing like, you know, intellectual type books, like philosophy books, like Emmanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. But as the series goes on and the gimmick of him being obsessed with octopuses like kind of takes over, like he's just shown more and more reading books about octopi. So that's also kind of a fun little detail there. Yeah, I think... uh Mendo kind of loses a lot of his, I mean, he's still upper class, but he loses a lot of his kind of... Pretentiousness. uh, I mean, yeah. Pretentiousness, I suppose. Kind of like, he doesn't lose his arrogance per se, but he kind of, when you get to know him, you certainly have a much lower opinion of him. Yeah. As the series goes on. Even even early on, it kind of hints that he's basically just Ataru, but rich. Mm. But as you, as you kind of move on from that he does become his own character but as you get to know him he's more than what you think he is but he's also less than what you originally thought he was mm-hmm. okay and i think that brings us to the end yes. of uh lum squad episode five yeah. that's probably gonna be a long this one. was an interesting <laughs> uh episode considering the two halves of this were recorded months apart uh literally we begin mm. this episode by saying hey we recorded this on halloween 
of 2020. <laughs> and, and now the second half, you're listening ago. to the end of this. Uh, we recorded on February 5th, 2021. So literally three months have passed in the span of the single episode you've been listening to. <laughs> it's a long three months so past. You're we out. have... I did tweet out something saying my 2020 New Year's resolution is to put more effort in and make more Lump Squad. Uh, it's now 2021. Oh, God. <laughs> However, I have actually, we have set aside uh, some time at the beginning yes. of each month, so we should be able to record this fairly regularly. Yes, we have a recording plan and a release plan that I think should be very manageable to stick to. Monthly releases, hmm. we probably record first Friday or at least first weekend of every month and release episodes on the last Friday or at least the last weekend of every month. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you very much for, uh, for listening to Lum Squad. Uh, you can find me at uh, Prod Tally, home of the Daily Lum on Twitter. And where can we find you? You can find me at Lum Ramayasha on Twitter. Variety of places under that name. Any list, any resolution. You know, wherever there's a Lum Ramayasha, that's where you can find me. You can read my reviews on allatchum.com. We've got a lot to come in, a lot of books, uh, reviews of books going out. So look forward to more of those on there for me. And of course, uh, you can find this podcast at Lum underscore squad on twitter and of course we have our own podcast feed for this podcast uh you can look for that on mm-hmm. apple podcast Stitcher, spotify a lot of places uh we on for this podcast and its own dedicated podcast feed and yeah mention the twitter at underscore squad but also you have a email if you want to send us feedback and send us suggestions or talks in the show lumsquadpod at gmail.com and a Tumblr, alumsquad.tumblr.com. And also, of course, this podcast we posted in the Manga Marriott's feed, so you can follow Manga Marriott's for updates, especially because early episodes of this uh, podcast, or at least, like, these podcasts, if they're done edited early, they'll be posted early on the Manga Marriott's Patreon, so you can check that out at patreon.com slash manga mavericks where we have a lot of uh, tier options for you to pledge support at like $2 early access tier if you want to list early episodes of Little Squad Book so $5 tier for bonus podcasts like currently we're going through uh, Saint Seiya two volumes at a time Colton and Doctor are reading it for the first time so if you want to hear in their thoughts on that classic uh, 80s show jump manga you gotta Check in on that. They're entering the Hades arc, so I'm excited to hear uh, their reactions to that arc. It's in particular. Uh, and you can follow Manga Mavericks at Manga underscore Mavericks, and uh, of course, the Manga podcast is on uh, all these podcast platforms you can think of. YouTube says these Manga Mavericks. You can also watch episodes of uh, Mavericks and Lum Squad on there. Uh, Lum Squad also has a YouTube channel. Uh, you can also just search for that. The channel name is just Lum Squad. And I think, yeah, that about covers it. And thank you for joining us again for this wonderful, wacky journey through the lovely world of Kodakashi Zurusagatsu. And we will see you again in the next episode as we cover the eight Wombless Wombless the series, which I am very much looking forward to. Oh, yeah, that kind of introduces the, um, it kind of finalizes the cast, let us say. Goodbye, darlings. Bye, darlings.